welcome to Crystal Cal and Friends. We have a wonderful guest for you today who we are very excited to speak with. Um, one of the former Gravel teens. He's now, I think, a Gravel 20-something-year-old. Now he's a Gravel senior citizen. That is correct. <laughs> he's joined the AARP. Um, Henry Williams, he was, you know, part of the Gravel campaign. He launched that campaign um, and has now co-founded the Gravel Institute and is doing really important work to build up left infrastructure. Just very excited to get his perspective. Yeah, you know, I will say I, I was a little too harsh on them at the beginning. So I, I just watched their documentary, American Gadfly, about yeah. Mike Gravel and the campaign and everything. And at the beginning, I remember when they announced the run, first of all, as such a Bernie bro, I was like, it all goes to Bernie. Like in, <laughs> in my mind, that's like, what are you doing? It's Bernie, it's Bernie. <laughs> so that was my initial reaction. But then also the cynical part of me, and again, I was incorrect in this, but the cynical part of me was like, I think these teens are just trying to get clout. Mm. And I think it's about them. And what is clear to me now that I've learned since then is actually no. It was actually the polar opposite. It was the polar the opposite. They wanted to take a, a, a senator who they know and respect and knew a lot about. This guy's an American hero um, and really stood for moral values and ethics and, and doing the right thing and dismantling the American empire and uh, all, all the right things. And they wanted to take his legacy and remind everybody of that legacy, but then also serve the function of like, no, let's shift the Overton window and make this uh, election, this primary, actually about the issues. And yes, you have Bernie Sanders on stage. Yes, he's amazing. But you know what? There are some areas where Bernie Sanders uh, can improve. Yeah. And so they, they said, we're going to be his left flank. We're going to try to drag that Overton window to the left. And it's about the issues. It's obviously not about, uh, you know, the self-aggrandizement of Mike Ravel. I mean, how absurd <laughs> How absurd would that be? Uh, so I, I was a little too harsh on them early on, and I think now looking back at it, um, it was they weren't doing it just for clout. No, not, um, I mean, again, the polar opposite of that. It was all about the values and not at all about the personalities. And um, it was also very, like, clever and courageous what they did yeah too. and when i saw how they made mike Ravel feel because at first again oh, yeah. i thought they were they're they're kind of taking advantage of this guy no mike Ravel. oh he was all he was, he was almost like waiting for somebody he's 80 he was 89 years old he was waiting for somebody to like take that Gravel torch and run with it and i don't think he had anybody until that point and then these kids came along and they were like we're gonna do it because we believe in you and your vision and, you know, it was it was emotional, like watching that American Gadfly. Everybody check it out. Yeah, it's great. And, and that's exactly that's a part. One of the parts of the movie that makes you feel so great is you see how at the very end of his life, they come right. in and make him so relevant and so known and so germane to a new generation that's now learning from and inspired by his legacy. I mean, if they accomplished nothing else, which they did accomplish many other things and are continuing to do so. But if that was it that would have been a, a profound um, gift to all of us. You got, you, I'm telling you, you got to go watch the documentary. You guys really are going to love it. If you want to see all the stuff going on behind the scenes in, in the primary, and you, you get to see Andrew Yang, Tulsi Gabbard, everything mm -hmm. behind the scenes you yeah, get to see because they're running look. the campaign, it's go check out American Gadfly. One of the things about Gravel is he is such a believer in democracy, like direct democracy, such faith. Which is in, one of my big things now. In as, the people. and I mean, you talk about a true sort of populist and belief and faith that, you know, collectively we're going to do better than these corrupt assholes. That's that's him. So what's the idea I've been talking about more and more and more and more is every time you vote for president, I think you should be able to vote on five very important political issues as well, like minimum wage, legalizing marijuana, ending the wars, uh, paid sick leave, which is so important in the middle of a pandemic that's been raging for two years. So if you're able to vote directly on that every four years when you go vote for president, we already have like 
a laundry list of the things that we love and we care about. And guess who got to that issue decades ago? It was Mike Gravel. Mike Gravel, I, his dynamics probably aren't exactly the same as mine. I made mine up and pulled that out of my ass. a third, like... A third branch of government a that's a direct democracy body. branch of government. So that's a little different, but it's the same idea. idea. And yeah, so anyway. Okay, so before we get to Henry, though, um, we had a couple of stories that we wanted to bring to you. So Kamala Harris, our vice president, uh, did a relatively rare sit-down interview with Craig Melvin of NBC. Um, Craig pressed her on a number of things, including their coronavirus response. Let's take a listen to a little of that. At what point does the administration say, you know what, the strategy isn't working, we're going to change strategies? Six former administration officials last week wrote that open letter urging the administration to change course, to change strategy. Is it time? It is time for us to do what we have been doing, and that time is every day. Every day it is time for us to agree that there are things and tools that are available to us to slow this thing down. And so right now we know we still have a number of people that, that is in the millions of Americans who have not been vaccinated and could be vaccinated, and we are urging them to get vaccinated because it will save their life. At, at what point but, does the administration acknowledge these people aren't going to get the shot? They're just not going to do it. I don't believe in giving up on people, Craig. I really don't. The 500 million tests that have been ordered that are going to be sent to every, every American, do we know when those are going out? Shortly, though they're gonna go out shortly. Next they've been or? ordered, they've been ordered. We, I have to look at the current information. I think it's gonna be by next week, but soon, absolutely soon. And it is a matter of urgency for us. Should we have done that sooner? We are doing it. But should we have done it sooner? We are doing it. Less than inspiring. And just the quote when she's asked about should you change strategies at this point, this is the quote, just to read it back to you. It is time for us to do what we have been doing. And that time is every day. Every day it is time for us to agree that there are things and tools that are available to us. What? When, <laughs> when he asks, should you have done it sooner? Here's the answer you give. Yeah. Yeah. And then, by the way, I don't even think you get headlines out of that. People just be like, well, yeah, of course. Right. And it, by the think, way, yeah, but even if there are headlines. Time to spin it up or whatever. Even if there are headlines, uh, you're being honest and forthright and straightforward. And when you, when you show honesty, what that indicates to people is you will continue to be honest. And that builds points with them. It also shows That's an important you're not point. just honest to the world. You're also being honest with yourself about your shortcomings. And then you can address that and change and go in the right direction. But should you have done it sooner? We're, we're doing it. Okay. okay. Should, you have, done it should you have done it sooner? We're doing it. <sighs> She's, and the other thing, just on a political theater, she's so bad at this. She's terrible These at it. These are the most obvious questions. And Craig isn't going easy on her. I mean, he's, he's pressing her a little bit. But these are the most obvious questions you could possibly be getting about tests, about the coronavirus strategy, about, hey, you know, you've probably gotten vaccinated. Most of the people that you're, is it time to, like, think about another direction? All of these things are just basic talking points 101 that you should have been briefed on and prepared for. It reminds me of, you know, some of the leaks in the chatter that have come out of her world, which is apparently very dissatisfied. And you have everybody from Simone Sanders to a number of other aides who have left, is that it's extremely frustrating. She's given briefing materials. She does not 
engage with them or prepare. And then when things don't go well, as they did not in this interview, then she blames the staff oh, Jesus for Christ. not preparing her adequately. I mean, sit on the fact that this is the person who the Democratic Party handpicked. Her or Pete? As this is who we want to be the next president of the United States. It's astonishing. Look, from a basic, let's let's zoom out for a second here and just think about politics in a very broad and, and generalized way, okay? What are some character traits that you need in order to be a good politician? Well, I mean, one thing is just like charisma. Mm -hmm. You have to have charisma. You have to have some X factor that makes you likable. You don't even necessarily have to have charisma. You just have to not be unlikable, mm -hmm. okay? She doesn't have charisma and she's not likable. Then you have other things people respect in politicians and seem to gravitate towards, strength and authenticity. Mm. And you don't even have to be authentic, you just have to feel like you're being authentic. Right. She doesn't have either one of those. Right. No charisma, she's not likable, no authenticity, no strength. Of course you're gonna have like a 28% approval rating, which is what she has. And then when you look at this, you go, oh my God, you know, she would lose to Mike Pence. She would lose to somebody on the other side who, you know, we let Ted Cruz might be able to beat the, beat her. She'd get destroyed Ted, by Trump. Ted Cruz, Mr. Smarmy, I'm Ted Cruz. Me, the guy who talks nasally, who's incredibly awkward, who also is not anywhere near authentic or likable. Because at least he, you know, what the one thing he has that she doesn't. Well, maybe this changed recently with the whole Trump thing and and January six, but Him he at least himself. had a, he, he at least had the base. <laughs> some strength. Some some no, not even strength. Some element of the base. Mm. was was with him. Now that may have changed, but I mean, oh God, you want to talk about, it would be worse than Trump Hillary if it was Ted Cruz oh, versus God. Kamala Harris. Oh my oh, God, I'm giving myself bad. an aneurysm that's just talking bad. about it. That is but really look, bad. I want to get to the, to the <laughs> substance of it real quick because I think yeah. this is actually important. So there's a lot of debate on the left and in the country in general as to, well, what really should we do in regards to the pandemic? And some people on the left are very, are just flat out saying, look, we need another lockdown. This thing's out of control. What are we going to do? It is what it is. Some teachers unions, like in Chicago, they're striking. They want at least to temporarily be out of the class. Although some teachers also just want they more. They came to an agreement, by the way, okay. back in the classroom. Okay. Yeah. Or they just want more safety standards within the classroom, whatever it is. But there is a debate on the left. Hey, lockdown versus don't lockdown. There is a debate. Vaccine mandate versus no vaccine mandate, that's going on as well. And everybody knows my personal take on that. I think there's another option on the table, which is the vaccine or test policy. Yeah. Um, but so what would I do? I mean, I would have done vaccine or test. I wouldn't have done it for businesses with 100 employees or more. I would have done it with all businesses. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one thing I would have done. And the other thing I would have done, and I think this is a no-brainer, but this is not something I've heard people talk about or harp away on, even though they should be, is... Defense Production Act, use it for masks, use it for monoclonal antibodies, use it for tests, use it for remdesivir, all the stuff that now we got the word, okay, only one of the three versions of monoclonal antibodies works against Omicron, and now it's in short supply. Why wouldn't you have invoked the Defense Production Act day one of your presidency to say, look, we got to make sure just in case, in case there's another spike, in case something happens, we got to make sure we have a stockpile of this stuff as far as the eye can see but they didn't do it because they don't know how to govern because they don't care about governing because they're neoliberals. And part of the neoliberal philosophy and ideology is government can do some things, but not too much. Well, we can only do tweaks around the edges. Yeah, we can only do partnerships right. with the private marketplace. FDR is rolling over in his grave right now when he looks at these people who govern but don't believe in government. And then, of course, you get stuff like this, and you get stuff like Jen Psaki laughing at the idea of getting Americans' tests yeah, when every was, other developed country was getting Americans' tests way before the United States. That was astonishing. And it's... There's an ideological issue. There's also just a straight-up competence issue. 
I mean, they were apparently, reporting says, presented with a plan to ramp up test production oh, ahead of this. ahead of Omicron, which, look, nobody knew what the specific next variant would be. But it was, you know, it was always a major possibility, if not a likelihood, that there would be another variant that, you know, we even before Omicron emerged, we were saying, ah, what's going to happen in the winter? What's going to happen when people get together with the holiday, holidays? This was all incredibly predictable. And they said, nah, we're good. So, I mean, there's an ideological issue here. And then there's a basic competence issue here. And it, it truly is unforgivable. And I do think the critique of them, Craig was kind of getting at this of like, some of these people are just not going to get vaccinated. So what is the rest of your right. plan? Yeah. That's that's legitimate to say, because what's easy for them and what's easy for a lot of liberals is just to say everything that's going bad right now, it's the fault of the unvaccinated right. people. That's yeah. the entirety mm-hmm. of the problem, because then, well, they don't have to do anything. It's all about those bad people out there who won't do their responsible thing. And you should go get the vaccine, not just for yourself, but to protect the people around you. But that is not the entirety of what a COVID plan, response plan, should ultimately look like. And they have wanted to completely abdicate their responsibility in all other regards. And I always have to bring up, I mean, one of the most damaging things that they've done or failed to do is pushing for patent protection around the world to help to stop new variants for emerging and also just because it's the right thing to do to give the developing world access to the global south access to the same life-saving vaccines that we ultimately have here and you know they did the rhetorical yes we support it and then they've done absolutely nothing to actually um, bring big pharma to heal and make that a reality so that's the real conspiracy that real conspiracy that's out in the open is they're not lifting uh, the patent protections. And what that means is there are no generic vaccines being made in factories that can make those generic vaccines. So we have many fewer vaccines that are in the developing world. The rate is so low. And when you have a virus spread uh, as rapidly as it's spreading now through uh, populations that are unprotected, that's even more likely they're going to get a variant. In fact, uh, Delta came from India when they were largely unvaccinated. Yeah. So, you know, you're you're. Rolling the dice here. You're playing Russian roulette here. The entire continent of Africa has something like an 8% vaccination rate. I mean, it's... it's Don't worry, Bill Gates is going to... He's on top of it with COVAX. Completely abhorrent. Yeah. And to your point, the real conspiracy is they love to be able to charge the premium prices to us here in the U.S. and other rich countries around the world and keep the poor world as basically guinea pigs so that they can spin up a new variant that then requires more boosters or a new vaccine or whatever to keep their profits going. Correct. That's the real conspiracy here. That's true. I do want to add to one thing you said, though, because you're right. Now, part of their strategy, I don't know if they've outwardly said this, but it's probably coming, is, well, just say it's the unvaccinated's fault Mm -hmm. and then move on. And so this way you could just pawn off all your failures. Now, on the one hand, listen, there is some semblance of individual responsibility because the vaccine at this point is free at the point of service. Mm-hmm. You go in there, you can get the vaccine. Yeah. And there are some there is some percentage of the population that's not going to get vaccinated. I'm not going to sit here and pat him on the head and be like, you know, it's totally fine. Well, it's really not that fine because I know because I went in the hospital for my leg and the hospital emergency room was jam packed. I mean, there were people who just got in car accidents sitting there half conscious and they didn't have a hospital bed. There were people going through withdrawal. They didn't have a hospital bed. There was this poor woman who came in who had a a, a poor girl. I mean, little girl who came in with a broken finger. She had to sit there and wait for 15 minutes before she could get help. And so what's happening is because the, the hospitals are being overstressed with COVID patients, that means a lot of people who it's not COVID related 
have to wait a hell of a lot longer. So I'm not taking all responsibility away from the unvaccinated people. Yeah. But what I will say is this. What can you do and what should you do if you're the federal government? Well, for the love of God, do anything and everything in your power to beef up hospital capacity. To, I mean, in the middle of the pandemic, they tried to do this, like in 2020 at some point, they tried to do this. Hey, we got this uh, military boat that's being repurposed for, uh, you know, COVID patients yeah. if need be. So why are you not? I mean, there should be a massive... Why sh wouldn't the federal government come out and say, you know what, $50,000, they're doing this with the military. We're having trouble getting people because of the pandemic. $50,000 signing bonus come in. Uh, you know, they should be doing this with, look, doctors, we need you. I know that everybody who can retire is retiring because you're overstressed and, and overworked and all that stuff. But $50,000 sign up bonus and, and we're beefing up hospital capacity over here and over here and over here and over here. And like none of that was done. So I do. I don't think the unvaccinated are totally blameless because they are overstressing the system. And these are the people who are largely dying from this. Uh, but at the same time, if you have a policy in place, or at least they're trying with vaccine or test, it doesn't go far enough. But OK, vaccine or test. And still some people are not going to get the vaccine. That's going to happen. Some people are not going to get the vaccine. Mm -hmm. You have to deal with that reality in an adult way. And the adult way to do it is exactly what I'm saying. Use all the resources that you have at your disposal, Defense Production Act and other stuff, in order right. to beef up hospital capacity, create more of the treatments that we know work, so on and so forth. Yeah. And she tries to frame it as, well, I'm not giving up on those people. No. OK, fine. Don't give up on those people. No. But at the same time. <laughs> Do all of the shit that mm -hmm. you possibly can do and don't just throw up your hands and, ah, well, what can we do? We're, we're trying our best to convince well, this population that's very unlikely to ultimately be convinced. On the hospital thing, too, I mean, this is this is very real. And it's not just with Omicron. There are significant numbers and we don't know exactly the number of people who are coming and they're getting tested. They're coming in for something else. They're getting tested because Omicron is so infectious. They're there for something else and they happen to have COVID and COVID is not the main reason that they ultimately are there. Um, that's pointed at by a lot of folks who want to say like, oh, these numbers are being infl inflated, et cetera, et cetera. And the hospital crisis really isn't that bad because most of these people, they're just there incidentally with COVID. That still takes up a lot of resources, though, because if you now have a person who's infectious with COVID, even if that isn't the primary reason that they're there, you have to go through all of those protocols to make sure that it doesn't spread further. So that's tremendously taxing on hospital resources. And then this comes at a time, as you alluded to, that a lot of nurses, a lot of doctors who could retired because this was so incredibly stressful and horrific and a tiny percentage, really quite small, that uh, because of vaccine mandates left. And so you have this kind of perfect storm where, you know, the, the hospitals really are in a very difficult and very stressed place. So, um, yes, this is not to let the unvaccinated off the hook or say that they have no responsibility. It's to say, guess what, Kamala Harris, you have some responsibility, too. Correct. And just a random aside here, because I'm probably deeply autistic and I can't let it go. But to the point that a lot of people on the right make about, oh, you go in with some other problem and mm -hmm. then you get tested and you have COVID and they count that towards you having COVID. This is crazy. Do you have any idea how many people have COVID and either take a rapid test and it never gets in any official mm -hmm. results or don't take any tests at all and they're sitting at home with it? Mm -hmm. This idea that it's 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 being wildly inflated. The exact opposite is true. I watched a documentary on pandemics. This was even before COVID hit. And they were very clear. Every pandemic in history is undercounted during the pandemic. Why? Because the official capacity always lags way behind what the reality of the situation is. And now we're getting word. I covered this on my show. There's an entire county in Missouri where the coroner's like, we don't do COVID deaths. So there are some people that have an ideological predisposition of this thing is being overblown. And they're not counting any of the deaths as COVID deaths. So I just need everybody to pump the brakes because it's not 
what they think, how they think the numbers are skewed, it's actually the exact opposite. And we know that as a matter of historical fact. So if there are people who have this and they go in and they get tested, oh, you had COVID too, but you're asymptomatic. At the very least, you should include, include those people in the statistics because of all the people who have COVID, who have no interaction with the system, your daughter, for example, yeah. had COVID. She, she was never counted in the official statistics. Yeah. These numbers are, are nowhere near what the actual numbers are. Um, one other piece of data to back up your point, which is that, and I do think Omicron is a little bit different because it's so infectious and because it's more mild, that there are more of the more people who fall into that category of there with COVID instead of um, because of COVID. But if you look over the course of the pandemic, the spikes in hospitalization with COVID exactly mirror the spikes in excess deaths. So right. this is, you know, they, they go, track each other very closely. So that just shows you that, yes, this was real. Yes, when people are hospitalized with COVID, this is a real thing. And it leads ultimately to, you know, it's led to significant death. Probably a million Americans have died. Yeah, so I've read an article on this exact thing where, so the, when the official COVID deaths uh, number was 800,000, they said the real number, if you include the excess deaths, was over a million, just over a million. Yeah. So that's how much is probably undercounted by. Um, um, what's our former president up to these days? So um, Donald Trump is making the rounds and doing a bunch of interviews. He had an interview the other day with NPR where apparently he hung up on the guy. Yeah, the guy was, stop the steal stuff. Yeah, the guy was pressing him on January 6th and then Trump, you know, threw a tantrum and hung up. I didn't see that one yet. I don't know if you did either. I read the article about it, but I haven't listened to the interview. Yeah. Um, so, but I found I found something here that I think is actually more interesting for reasons that we'll get into. So he's going to talk about the vaccine. He's going to talk about the booster. It's something he's been doing a lot recently. He did it on Candace Owens' show, and he did it in front of the a crowd with Bill O'Reilly, mm -hmm. where he was being clear. Look, credit where credit is due. He was like, yeah, I got the vaccine. I got the booster. And the people who get vaccinated are not really the ones who are dying. And so it's probably a good idea to get it. Yeah, you have your freedoms. Yeah, I'm anti-mandate. But I'm going to say that part. Well, now look at what he's saying, and I'll tell you why he's saying it. Do you reconsider your push for it, or what's your view now on the vaccine in general? Well, I've taken it. I've had the booster. Many politicians, I watched a couple of politicians be interviewed, and one of the questions was, did you get the booster? Because they had the vaccine. And they, oh, they're answering it like, in other words, the answer is yes, but they don't want to say it. Because they're gutless. You've got to say it. Whether you had it or not, say it. Right. But the fact is that I think the vaccine has saved tens of millions of people throughout the world. Okay. Uh, I have had absolutely no side effects. I've had it like other people have had it, nothing special. I've had it. Okay, so uh, before I get into why he's saying this, yeah. let me just say there's one part of this that I agree with, next level agree with. Like, I'm really happy he said it. He was like, say it, just say it. Like, whether, it, whether you've had the booster or didn't have the booster, just say like what your your situation is. Yeah. And the reason why I respect this is I see a lot of people now who, and there are people who are um, anti-mandate pro-vaccine, but there are also people who are anti-mandate ambiguous on the vaccine, or they claim to be anti-mandate pro-vaccine, but then 80 or 90% of their commentary when it comes to the vaccine is pointing out like anecdotal examples of it not going well with the vaccine, which mm -hmm. means functionally they're pushing people more in an anti-vax direction. Just say what your actual position is. If you're going to be anti-vaccine like i would respect it more if people went full rfk and they were like yeah I'm, i don't i don't like the vaccines and i'm anti-vaccine i don't think you should I, get it and yeah i would respect that front. shit more but people love to play hide the ball with this shit yeah, I hate that. and it's like god it's so fucking obnoxious and then they it's get so annoying so irritated if you use the term 
anti-vax. Right. Or yeah. even vaccine hesitant mm-hmm. to describe them. And it's like, well, when the sum total of your commentary, 99%, is going towards just talking about this risk and that risk, and let me cherry pick this study and that study, and never talking about the benefits, yeah, you're anti-vax. That's right. You are anti-vax. And, and for Trump to make that based-ass point, where he's like, look, just say it. Like, why are you being gutless? Yeah. Just say what your fucking position is. And in his case, he's just, just say the, whether or not you had a it. A bunch of the Fox News people are like this, too. Um, you know, I mean, Fox oh, has yeah. a policy in place that you basically have to have the vaccine or you're getting tested routinely. It's more stringent than what the Biden administration is proposing. And, you know, they very much hide the ball on what their status is. We talk about this all the time. Why is it the state level and the local level radio host, conservative radio host, who ended up dying of COVID, but not a single national figure has died of COVID, who's a con- conservative host. Why yeah. is that? Because all the ones who are at the national level are just playing a character and they're vaccinated. So they might feed anti-vax talking points out there, but they've personally been vaccinated, whereas the state level and the local level ones are true believers. They really believe all this stuff that they're saying, and a lot of them are dying as a result of it. By the way, side point, Glenn Beck has COVID right now, yeah, and he says he's not vaccinated, and he also says he's treating it with hydroxychloroquine oh, and ivermectin. He says he's not vaccinated. I that. Wait, did he? I, if, did I mishear sure. that? Okay, well, either way. I'll check that. Yeah, you check that, but he said he uh, is treating it with hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, and he was talking to Mark Levin about it. Mark Levin is arguably even crazier, crazier than Glenn Beck, but Mark Levin, in this back and forth with Glenn Beck, is clearly being the voice of reason and he's like, hey, dog, like, you might want to hit up those monoclonal antibodies or something. Like, because Glenn was saying, yeah, I've had it for a week and I've been okay, but now it's gone to my lungs. And Mark Levin's like, what? (laughs) Like, what? You're not, he's like, I'm not worried about this. Mark Levin's kind of like, you should be. Glenn Beck told Tucker in April that he previously had COVID and because, so this is his second bout with it. Um, and, and he's because of that, so we had the he would immunity. not be getting vaccinated because he says he has natural. So he had original and then Omicron. I think, yeah. Okay, all like right. It. Okay, well, anyway, uh, so maybe I'll have to revise this whole spiel if Glenn Beck ends up dying from from having COVID. Anyway, um, so here's why Donald Trump said this. He's taking a shot at Ron DeSantis. So Ron DeSantis had said, yeah, he, he got or the original vaccine. He got vaccinated once or had the two shots mm-hmm. for the one vaccination. But uh, he was asked recently if he got the booster and he was like, yeah, hold on. I want to pull up that quote. Yeah, pull up that pretty, quote because this it's is pretty dis- it's pretty disingenuous. Yeah, it is. And and Trump is 100 percent right when he's like, look, you're playing politics with this because you want to walk a line that like makes the base happy, but also doesn't piss off the majority of the country. And so you're refusing to give a straight answer. You're morphing into a politician. Right. So she says straight up, have you gotten the booster? He says, so uh, I've done whatever I did, the normal shot. And yeah. that at the end of the day is people's individual decisions about the, what they want to do. Yeah. So he is kind of saying, I just got the vaccine. Eh, what, I mean, he's, he's not saying he got the booster. To, he's trying to be unclear. He is not being clear here. Yeah. I, the sense I, g- I got from that is he just got normal vaccination. He didn't get the booster. But you're right. He's trying to, like, sort of I've hide done, it a little I've bit. I've done whatever I did. Right. And so, so Trump's like, just say it. Don't be gutless. Now, on the one hand, he's right. Like, I, I agree with that. But on the other hand, there's only one reason why he's doing this, which is he thinks this guy's the actual competition for the primary, upcoming primary. I guess. I think he's so petty that the fact that DeSantis even eats into his... There is a strain, I know this from talking to Sagar about it, there's a strain of the new right that is very enamored with DeSantis 
that sees in him someone who is way more competent. Smarter Trump. Than yeah. Trump, mm -hmm. but has a lot of the same policy positions. And so there is a strain of the do right that prefers DeSantis over Trump. Now, I don't think that's a, a large number percentage-wise in a Republican primary. I think Trump would wipe the floor with DeSantis. But he's a very petty man, Donald Trump. And so ultimately, he doesn't want any challenge to his complete hold on the MAGA faithful and the Republican Party base. So I think that's where it, where it comes from. Yeah, that's exactly. He doesn't want to have anybody challenge him. He doesn't want to stop being the alpha dog, the top dog. And I think he accurately senses that everybody else is really even way below DeSantis. Yeah. You know, and he would be the top person to challenge him. But yeah, to your point, I don't even know if he senses the grandiosity of his stranglehold on that base. You know what I mean? Like he might even underestimate just how much support he has in that base. Because if anybody ran, I think there are a couple of Republicans who are going to take, a, and I know you disagree with me on this, but I think there are a couple of Republicans who are going to take a crack at it yeah. and, run, and run even if he runs. Um, but even if it's DeSantis, who's his best competition in terms of popularity, yeah, I think he would drax them sclounced. I think Trump would destroy him. Because you, like, this, and this is a good example of why. Yeah. Trump here doesn't even realize it because it, it he's all like just instinct and just go. It, but yeah. that's actually being a phenomenal politician right there. Because if imagine them in a debate and they're talking about this issue, I could see Trump on stage just being like, say it, Ron. Why aren't you saying it? I got boosted. You guys have your freedoms. I'm against the mandate. You can do whatever you want. But I'm going to tell everybody the vaccine is good. I got the vaccine. I got the booster. And little Ron here won't even tell you. Actually, he's not too little. He's actually very large, if I don't think so myself. <laughs> but Ron here, Ron here is not even going to be honest with you. If he can't tell you the truth about a little thing like this, he's not going to tell you the truth about anything. And it's and such a bad look for politicians when they get so, like, wiggly and weasley about something like this. And there's no way out of this box. No way out no of this way box. Out. Um, it reminds me of... Of, um, I don't know if you guys remember Alison Lundergan Grimes uh -huh. when she ran against Mitch McConnell. Did you vote McConnell. for Obama? Yeah. <laughs> she, gets, she gets asked, "Is this is Kentucky? You know, it's a state that really didn't like Barack Obama." Um, and she gets asked, "Did you vote for Obama?" And she will not say. Won't and say it's, it. It it's just again, if she had just said, "I'm a Democrat. I voted for the Democrat," and then moved on, no story. But because they saw. The, they smelled the blood in the water and they saw how weaselly and wiggly and how like just slimy she was about all of this. And it was so clear, too. It's not like you were hiding from anybody. What really happened? You voted for Obama and you don't want to admit it. Like everybody knows that that was the case. So you're not even, you know, confusing the issue whatsoever. Right. It was it was devastating. I mean, she was going to lose to Mitch McConnell anyway, probably, but uh, it was ended up being a total, you know, bloodbath. Like, she didn't even come close. And that moment was a big part of it. Authenticity and strength. And if you don't have authenticity or strength, then you have to at least give off the appearance of authenticity and or strength. And, yeah. and, and that's I think that's one of the things about Trump that landed so well. Yeah, well, and here's the other thing. It's just from a numbers perspective, something like 85% of the American adult population has at least one vaccine. So the hard anti-vax, I'm not getting it no matter what. It's not popular. Is even in the Republican Party is a minority position. That's right. So by staking out this ground, yeah, he may not be like winning over the hearts, you know, of like making the hearts flutter of the Candace Owens base, but of the broader Republican Party, He's in the majority and no, on solid footing here. You're right, because he's giving the base enough. 
when he says, I'm, I'm, I'm against the mandate, yeah. you have your freedoms, and he says that a lot, that's enough for them to be like, okay. all right. Yeah. You know? I wish he would say the thing that I want him to say on the vaccines, but as long as he's not going to make me get it, then I'm good. Yeah. And, oh my God, you compare that to, like, the Kamala stuff and how she's answering questions and... And oh. Biden, Biden every now and then can be forceful. He just gave the speech on voting rights, which was a good speech. But it's like, this is the only thing you're going to do this on? You didn't. Why? Why didn't you yell at Mansion on Build Back Better? Like, so he's got flashes of it, but he's also a half zombie. So whatever ends up happening in 2024, it's like we're right back to like 2015 vibes in terms of the feeling of like, wait. So is Trump going to run? Okay, Trump's running. Is he really a threat? And then it's like he wins the first debate. Okay, but is he going to win the second debate? He wins the second debate. Okay, but is he going to win a caucus or a primary? He wins the first one. He wins the second one. You're like, there was oh. so, much, so much magical thinking around the polls, too. Like, sure, he's it's, up yeah, in the polls. <laughs> right. But when but he's got some, a hard cap on 38%. Right, exactly. Yeah, all these, it was there there was right. kept being hard caps that get lifted and lifted and lifted until he's, you know, the... Most popular, what does he say, most popular Republican president ever or something like and that. And I smell that in the air now. Don't you smell that in the air, too? Yeah. The same sort well, of like. It's it's even more clear. It's very clear now because we know he's politically formidable. He, you know, was totally terrible during COVID. Everybody hated his COVID response. It was the number one issue in the election. He's still barely lost. That's what Barely so, lost. That's what drives me crazy, Crystal, is that these Republicans should be so easy to beat you should be able to beat them with both hands tied behind your back and half your brain working yeah because all they have at this point is just culture war slop yeah talking about dr seuss and mr potato head and stop the steal and i want to have the right to go to denny's and die unvaccinated it's like this is all they got and they're still crushing the democrats because the democrats are basically twiddling their thumbs and doing nothing with the power that they have right now. I saw an analysis this morning that in the midterms, Republicans could be poised to win their largest majority in a century. This and Republican Party, which is so pathetic and so sold out and not even running on anything. Nothing. And this guy, basically, <laughs> anybody who's still with Trump hardcore is just in a cult at this point. I think Chris Hedges is right when he said that. That, look, you have to functionally look at it like a cult because that's that's how it manifests. Because he's already governed for four years. He's governed as a standard establishment Republican in most respects. And so it's like, really? This is the guy? But yeah, it's like a cult. But the guy who who's a cult figure who taps out at like, 30% support. Somehow that guy really is the favorite. Really is the favorite. And look, half of it, yeah, individual agency, you can say all you want about the people on the right, and I'm there with you for Trump's hardcore base, but at the same time, like I said, if you can't beat these people, let me just give one example. I'm going to shut up soon, I swear, but let me just give one example. We've been in a raging pandemic for two years. Why on earth have the Democrats not put up through regular order a one-page bill that says, uh, Paid sick leave. We're doing a paid sick leave law. Yeah. For whatever, X amount of weeks, you get paid X amount, government picks up this, business picks up that, whatever. You can work out the details. It can be very simple. One page bill, paid sick leave. And then you propose it, and every single Democratic senator goes out there, gives interviews, goes on the Sunday shows. Joe Biden gives a speech from the Oval Office during primetime. You know, uh, you do anything and everything, and then if slash when, they vote it down. By the way, under that scenario, I guarantee you Manchin and Cinema would vote for it. Yeah. Under that scenario, they definitely would vote for it. Yeah. Maybe you knock off Mitt Romney, maybe Josh Hawley, maybe you get like three Republicans who have a semblance of shame left in their body. But when you lose, boom, 
you have it right there. Are you kidding me? That's something you clobber them with over the head relentlessly until the next election. We voted to give you paid time off in the middle of a pandemic. We're the only developed country in the world that doesn't have this thing. And these people blocked it. Here's their names. Here's the list of them. Why don't you call their offices? Why don't you march on their offices? This is insane what we're talking about here. We fought for you. We have the receipts that we fought for you. And you know what? If you want us to win on this, you know what to do. You get your ass to the polls and you vote for the right people. Yep. That's it. Yeah. None of them have any idea how to play politics. And there's a whole list of issues that you could go down. And this has been, I mean, this has been the point that Bernie has been making yes, recently. Correct. Of bring each of these to the floor. Make them vote. Make on them it. vote against it. Force right. them to vote against it. Because Manchin right now with Build Back Better, with it all being lumped in this one thing, he can hide behind this or that provision or this or that, not even provision, talking point. About, right. Oh, it's the money and the inflation or whatever. When it comes down to the actual specifics, are you really going to vote against paid sick leave, which has like an 80% approval rating? Are you really going to vote against Medi like Medicare prescription drug reform, which child has tax credit. 85 child tax credit? You can throw in their minimum wage. I mean, they should be voting on things that are very clear winners where you are on the clear right side of public opinion and Republicans are clearly on the wrong side where you're saying this is our agenda. If you want this agenda, you should back us. And instead, they're like, I mean, the stuff that they're doing right now on the filibuster is so pathetic. Oh, my God. I can't even get myself. <laughs> just, just an exemption really for voting dig, rights. And that's it. Dig into it because exactly. And and it's even worse than that because they know it's not even, even that's not going to work. Right. I mean, I might be able to support in theory that strategy if you're like, all right, we can peel Manchin off on this one thing. At least we'll get something done. But, you know, it's going to fail. So if you know it's going to fail, at least go for the whole thing. It's, that's right. It's and, so perplexing. And even we're overcomplicating it because uh, two words, executive order. Like, okay, you want to give yourself a better chance in the midterms and, and in 2024, for the love of God, just eliminate student loan debt. It takes one second. You just have to write it on a sheet of paper. You have the authority through the 1965 Civil Rights Act, or it's not Civil Rights Act, excuse me, Higher Education Act under Lyndon Johnson. You can do it. You can legalize marijuana right now. Right this is an issue that polls at over 60%. Right now you can do that. They're not doing it. He's not doing it. He's not doing it. It's like, do you want to lose? Is that like what you that. want to do? It feels like that. It certainly does, yeah. So, again, analysis this morning that says, and this is from uh, Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball. We have Kyle Kondik on uh, Breaking Points all the time. I mean, they're good, they're good analysts and have called a lot of these elections pretty closely. They say it could be the largest Republican majority in a century. That's how shitty the Democrats are. And do you have any I mean, idea the damage they're going to do with that? It... It's gonna the damage it's is gonna bad. be astronomical. It is bad. It is oh, bad. Boy. So I love, you know, Democrats, I understand why. Very concerned about like what if Republicans steal the next election? How about you worry if they just fucking win the next election? Because they're like you're not even making it's it so, close enough so that it would be a problem for them. They're gonna win in a landslide. They don't need to steal it. It's so them to have the Senate, the House, and the presidency, and they're like what if they steal the next one? What are you doing with the power right, right now? now that you have. Like, what are you doing right so now? So that you're even in a position to win for them to uh. have to steal it.
I don't uh, know how we even ended up here because the, we were originally talking about Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump well, and Trump alpha mailing. With the contrast between Kamala and her right, interview yeah. and Trump, it had to go there. Anyway, um, I think we need some hope in our lives right now because that conversation was very depressing. And we have someone who is doing something very positive um, to move the country forward and especially move the left movement forward uh, to represent these values that are so important and just to improve the material conditions of people here in this country. Henry Williams, he is co-founder of the Gravel Institute. He was one of the famous Gravel teens, and he joins us now. Henry Williams, thanks so much for joining us, man. Really appreciate it. Um, so you have quite an interesting story, to say the least. <laughs> Take me. I, so Crystal and I just recently watched your uh, your documentary. American Gadfly, yeah. which is really A Very good documentary. Charming. In fact, I will admit there were times where I was close to tearing up, you know, so you have oh. Mike Gravel, legendary senator, who uh, at first I was thinking, like, I have to admit, I'm a skeptical guy. So at first I was like, what are these teens doing? Are they just trying to, like, make a name for themselves by using Mike Gravel? And I was, like, skeptical of the whole thing. But then what became very apparent to me, which Crystal pointed out, is that this guy w was so happy and so thankful for you guys because what you did is took the legacy of a great senator and a great man and were able to, like— reintroduce the population to it decades later and then also make a difference from there. So talk me through the dynamics of how you guys wanted Mike Gravel to run, convinced Mike Gravel to run, and, you know, what the goal was in getting him to run. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it's a very extensive story, so I'll try to just get the, the key aspects of it. But I want you to take yourself back to 2019. I know it's very hard to do that these days, <laughs> to remember pre-pandemic times. Uh, but, you know, the way that things were shaping up then, it was the 2020 Democratic primary. And the realization was about 50 people were going to run, all of them with no chance of winning, all of them to advance their own careers, their own egos, their own media presence. And the dynamics of that huge clown car campaign made myself, some friends, and I uh, realize that you could really go very far with a stunt campaign. The difference was every stunt campaign that existed was about the self-aggrandizement of the candidate themselves. And we thought, why don't you use the same dynamic to actually talk about issues that nobody else talks about and serve as a left flank even further out than Bernie to shift the entire conversation over? Because whenever one candidate in a race has a position, Every news article has to say, well, at least one candidate has this position. At least one candidate is here. And, you know, when it comes to the Overton window, moving what is possible and acceptable in American politics, you need figures like that who stake out a position way outside of what is seen as politically viable today. So that was kind of the idea where it originally came from. And we were obsessed with these old clips, and I'm sure you've seen them of Mike at the 2008 debates, mm -hmm. standing up there with the three dominant figures of the Democratic Party in the 21st century, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Barack Obama. And there they are laughing at him. And he's saying the honest to God truth. And uh, I think we just saw that and realized this man is that person. He's like the conscience of this party, of this country. And he goes back way, way further too. And, you know, once we saw that dynamic, we just thought we have to meet this guy. So we, we contacted him by email on his website and he called me back like 20 minutes later. Wow. That's incredible. And so what were his <laughs> what did it feel like when you talked to him for the first time? And then what were his biggest reservations going in? Mm. 
Well, I have to say, he was so excited to just talk, just give his thoughts on politics, and he was fiery. I mean, he was going after every other candidate. And a lot of people always ask, because Mike was very decorous and very, you know, he has sort of a, a, a older generation sensibility about politeness. But in private, he was meaner than any of us about the other <laughs> candidates. And that was what that was what I really knew it would work. That was what it, what it clicked for me. And actually, he said, listen, I like this idea. I have two things. Uh, I'm very old and I don't want to leave my house. So first of all, it has to be in my house. And we said, OK, it'll be like a William McKinley front porch campaign. You sit in your home and the campaign will revolve around you. And then the other Kyle thing he said is what, you in like five years. Totally. There's, there's, one, there's one person you have to convince my wife, Whitney. And so we we focused on convincing her and we wrote her a memo. And I had never written a memo before, but I knew that he would like a memo because he was from the 70s. So. <laughs> <laughs> that and it worked. So true. It worked like yeah. the memo, the memo play worked. So it did. I think he liked how seriously we t were taking it. So I from from the documentary, one of the things he said was like, look, I really don't have any complaints. The one thing I'd ask you to do is reeled in a little bit with the F word, because that's, you know, I'm sure you know my show. And that's like the one complaint I get like, damn, I'm trying to show your stuff. to like my mom, but like she just can't get past you cursing so much. And so if you could just stop that a little bit, it'd yeah, be better. Yeah, when you filled in on breaking points. Yeah. The, when I filled in on breaking points, I, you know, I'm always in secular talk mode where I just talk like I talk and I. I didn't even realize that I cursed like every other sentence and I was like, oh God. So anyway, I tried to really when I was on breaking points. I think I succeeded by the you like did. the third time I filled yeah. in, I, I kind of was able mm -hmm. to, to get by it. But um, so you're posting on Twitter. That's the thing that made Mike Ravel the candidate that Mike Ravel was. And how the hell did you get that posting ability? And <laughs> for real, like how did you get that posting ability? And of the candidates, this is the most amazing thing to me. I don't even know the exact number. Maybe you do. You beat like half the candidates just by posting on Twitter. So explain that a little you, bit. I, I can tell you because I have these stats, these stats memorized, of course. Yes. Uh, there were about 26 significant or at least, you know, press covered candidates in the race. And we had more individual donations than all but six of them. Oh, so, uh, for a guy who didn't leave his house. I wow. love and that. I can tell you, I can tell you something else. So, so I want you to guess for me, how much money do you think Michael Bloomberg spent per donor he received? Oh, I used to know this stat. Per donor? Oh. Per donor here, individual donor he received, because you needed 65,000 of them to qualify for the debates. So they spent... obviously, most of them just bought their donors by getting ads and stuff. Yeah. He spent $130 per donor. <laughs> okay, $130 per donor. Cory Booker spent 60, I think. Oh. Uh, Bernie Sanders spent about $15 per donor. We spent about two. Wow. So we actually spent less money per donor than any other candidate in the entire campaign. Wow. That is incredible. You know, one of the things that I felt like I, the document, and first I should ask you, did you feel like the documentary was pretty accurate representation of what the campaign experience was like? Did you have any quibbles with it? I thought it was actually embarrassingly so because, <laughs> you know, we were, we were young and I, I mean, we're still young now, but so much has happened and so much has changed even in just the two years since then that it can be embarrassing to watch it and look back on it because we learned, I mean, you, you asked, how did we get good at posting? And honestly, it's just experience. You just start doing it and you end Amen, up brother. <laughs> getting a, a feel for the emotions of people. But I think the, the big part of it was 
the pathos, you know, the anger and the frustration with the political system was what we felt and what our entire generation feels. And I think once you have that internalized enough, you're going to be good at expressing it no matter what. And I think a lot of people get that and they just aren't willing to really uncensor themselves yeah. and unfilter themselves. And that's what we told Mike. We'd say, listen, sometimes we step over the line, but we're connecting with something here that's very real. And that was what you connected with. And that's why people are still watching this goddamn clip of you from 2008 every single day. <laughs> well, and that's, I mean, he clearly, he clearly trusted you in that regard and understood, like he understood what he understood and that this world that you were engaging with, you know, through the mechanism that you were engaging with was something that he didn't have a feel for. And so he clearly trusted you guys on that front. You know, the reason I found it so hopeful um, to watch is because the frustration and despair and, you know, anger that you all felt at the political system, obviously many millions of people in the country feel with the political system. And too often that just curdles into a kind of nihilism or a kind of politics that's just about mm. throwing stones, just about rejection. And instead, you all took that and said, no, here's here's the thing we can do. We don't just have to like sit back and be angry about it. Here's a concrete thing that we could do. And what the hell, let's try it. And by the way, I mean, Mike Ravel didn't end up being president, but the impact that you all had, if nothing else, in just educating people that here is this man who was a politician who really stood for something and stood by his principles and was smeared and dismissed for doing it, that was profoundly yeah. impactful. Was the goal to drag Bernie left? Was that part of the goal? So I can tell you that was absolutely the goal. And and the, the, the single point of it was foreign policy. We thought this is the thing that we think Bernie's the weakest on and also the one we think we can have the biggest moral force in speaking to. Mm. And also because of who Mike is, because Mike's record and his legacy is all about American empire and ending it. And I think he really has, and people, you know, they know about the Pentagon Papers. What they don't know is the role he played in the Panama Canal Treaty, returning the canal to Panama after it had been essentially seized through imperialist chicanery in the 1900s uh, and all, the, all this kind of stuff. I mean, Mike, you know, he, he played a very deep role in the 70s kind of crisis of empire that came out from all the church committee revelations about the CIA, everything like this. And that unique, the uniqueness of his position there was very much why we thought he was the right person to drag the whole field left on foreign policy. But once we got started, we realized there were all these other issues that we could seize on, where if you're the one champion of this thing, because again, you know, you can be the champion of it today, and then 20 years from now, you're gonna be vindicated. You know, Mike Gravel was the very first uh, American presidential candidate to support gay rights at all in any capacity. Wow. Wow. When he was in the when he was in the Senate in the 70s, he was the single member of the entire Senate to support gay marriage. Wow. I mean, he so but this is one of the things about his whole life. He was right. And then the world has caught up with him. And a lot of people ask me during the campaign why these old white guys like Bernie, like Mike Gravel, like Noam Chomsky, what, what have you. And I said, the reason is because they're the only ones who stuck with it, stuck with their ideals, one, and are still alive. Mm. That's basically, that's basically the, you know, that was what it was. And I said, I think it's very easy for people who are young and on the left to feel like there's nothing that precedes them mm. because there really is so little. And so these few figures who were there all this time, right all this time, they have a very unique impact and a unique role. You know, um, I'm close, have become closer with Marianne Williamson, who I love dearly as a person and respect. We just and saw her yesterday. 
She's... We, she was in our studio on Tuesday. We had a great time with her. Oh, that's awesome. So is she doing a Gravel Institute video? She is, and I, it's going to be one of our best ever. It's I can't basically wait. Marianne Williamson explains why you're depressed and why <laughs> the world's making you that way. I cannot wait to watch that. But, you know, I, I didn't realize what a kind of heroine she was in the Gravel right. campaign because, yeah. you was, know, yeah. Tulsi invited you guys to the debate, but then when you were like, hey, can you help us get over this donor threshold so that we have a chance maybe to be on the stage? And eh, I don't know. She, she's more interested in, hey, can I hire you to do my posting? <laughs> That's what it was. And that yeah. And then, you know, Andrew Yang, and I thought he was like upfront about this. He was, he was nice to you guys. He met with you. But then this was at a point when his campaign was kind of taking off and he was like, you know, in terms of actually helping you on the donor front, connecting you with my people, I just, I don't think I can do that right now. Marianne was all in right away and super supportive and helped you get over the donor threshold that you needed that was supposed to be the qualification for the debate. And I talked to her a little bit about the um, about American Gadfly and about her role and all of that stuff. And she said, and I don't think she would mind me repeating this as a text message from her. She said, Mike was great. Those are the kinds of people who are the real deal. People who are destroying the world treat the only sane people like they are naive, unsophisticated, errant children. And I thought that was so well said. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, and this is the thing. Mike treated the mainstream world like they were the fools and the idiots and treated us, a bunch of kids with some insane ideas, mm. like we were very serious people always and treated us like adults from the beginning. And with, with a level of maturity that... I hold with me because he taught me all of the political lessons that we now operate by. And he really had the experience. I mean, he didn't know the internet or Twitter, but he knew the media. And he really, I mean, he was at the center of a you know, national media firestorm for nearly a year when he was only 30. So he, know, he knows it to his bones. And I think that's a huge part of why he is that way. And about Marianne and about Yang, and I, you know, I, don't, <laughs> I maybe will speak out of turn here a little bit. I think the two of them are both really great. And that so much of it has to do with just they, as people, speak to concerns that run very deep in the electorate. And that's also true of Mike and of Bernie. You know, when you have potent political figures, they don't even know how to say what they're trying to say. But they can still seize on these themes that matter a lot, themes like loneliness, themes like this sort of replacement alienation under technology. I think these are, this is what made their campaigns interesting to me. And also as gadflies, people way outside the mainstream. And honestly, with, with, with Yang, for example, I always thought it was just his staff that were a little misguided because Yang actually wanted to help us with the campaign. He was this close to sending an email on our mm. behalf, uh -huh. and it was his staff that stopped him. I was actually, we were calling him up and saying, please, please, please help us. He says, I would love to, but my staff, you know, they, they're saying, you can't do this. You can't uh, help this guy out. That's literally exactly like what happened in his in New York mayor, race. mayor race where he surrounded he himself with Bloomberg people. And they told him what to do, and he would do it, and then he would plunge in the polls, and he'd be like, wait, no, I didn't, I didn't mean that. And it didn't work out well. Um, so I remember getting really angry at one point when watching the documentary, and that's when uh, the goal all along was 1% in the polls or 65,000 individual donations. And a lot of the polls just excluded you guys completely because this is what we call yeah. rigging the process. But then when you actually hit the $65,000 individual donor threshold, they go, meh, we changed it up on you, and uh, you still can't debate. So take me behind yep. the scenes when that happened and what that was like and what you guys were saying. 
Oh man! Well, they they added a secret rule that was not uh, displayed in any of the announcements about it. That wasn't even in any of the legal filings. In fact, we we almost retained a lawyer to sue about it, but basically we realized it was it was going to be too late to get an injunction that would matter, um, and there wouldn't be any kind of punitive relief because they can they can kind of set whatever rules they want, but they have to announce them, and they hadn't announced this one. But basically, it was that if more than twenty candidates qualified. They would rank them not by the individual donor threshold, but by the polls only. Now, people might think, well, that makes sense because the polls contribute to your candidate's viability. But we're talking about getting 1% in three polls, which is basically statistically an anomaly, you know, a totally random anomaly. You can have almost anyone do that if you just say their name when you're polling people. Some <laughs> number of people are going to support them. And usually the polls round up. So if even one person says yes to that candidate, you can get them 1% in the polls. Wow. And so- what these candidates, they all have connections to all the various pollsters. So they put the feelers out and the pollsters include their name without fail. We, on the other hand, were never getting included in any of these polls, right? Whenever we were, we were included in far fewer polls than most other candidates. And when we were, we nearly always crossed the threshold. In fact, we actually had something like seven polls showing Mike at two, three, four percent or higher. Uh, but they just weren't uh, official polls qualified by the DNC. We had two polls from, that were under the DNC standards, but not the three that were required. So we were literally within a hair's breadth of their uh, stated criteria. And then when we tried to contact them about it, we had to basically call everyone we knew to find people at the DNC in order to get them to return our calls. Mm. For two months, we heard nothing from them. And it was it was a deliberate strategy. I mean, they wanted to just ice us out and hope that we would we would just you know give up, uh, which did not work. And uh, of course, we had that audio that we released during the uh, primary later on in the primary when uh, Michael when the rules were changed in the debates at the very last second to allow Bloomberg on. Um, mm. uh, oh, so I remember. Oh, that was so that. bad. Bloomberg. And it was at that moment that we released the audio that we had recorded of the DNC people telling us we cannot change the rules for anyone mm. under any circumstances. That was what they told us. And uh, I think I think you can just look at that little parable right there. And that's everything you need to know about how this process actually works. Well, and I think it's important to part of what they found threatening about you all is that you expose the fakeness of the whole process. Right. Because what they like to say, and I think Dave Weigel in the film sort of says, like, yeah, of course, the DNC is not going to want someone who is not really intending to win and not really intending to be president to be there on the stage. But as you accurately point out, everybody except basically Bernie and Biden were there as fake candidates to boost their profile. Yep. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, Pete Buttigieg didn't think he was going to be president going in. He thought, oh, maybe I could be transportation secretary. I'm going to boost my image. I'm going to gain clout by doing this and introduce myself to a bunch of wealthy donor class folks. And that sort of fakeness is allowed because it has a right, little right. thin enough veneer on top of it. But by you all being sort of, you know, explicitly about pushing a message and making people uncomfortable, that gave up the game for them in terms of how fake and how silly the whole spectacle really was at its core. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the thing. I'm not against political gamesmanship. I'm against political gamesmanship when it's about self-interest and ego. Mm. I think you use you use political gamesmanship to accomplish real goals in the world. And that's what Mike has always done. You know, Mike is sort of a he's he does stunts, you know, and those stunts have really paid off for him in his political career. But they were always substantive. They were always about actually accomplishing something. The uh, as I said, the many fake campaigns of the 2020 election were about 
getting Pete Buttigieg's transportation secretary, getting their name recognition up, getting on a national stage. Bloomberg dropped a billion dollars for, I don't even, I, it's honestly not even clear in retrospect what he accomplished with it. Uh, and, uh, and this was the real reason that almost every candidate was running. And we said, well, what if we took that same dynamic, but actually we're running for purely unegoistic reasons? And Mike would say up front, I do not want to be president. I'm not going to be president. This is about saying something that the American people need to hear and changing the dynamic internal to the race itself. And the, the last thing on that as well is that, uh, you know, we actually did come closer than the people who were allegedly trying to win. And I think you can look at the Obama call right before Super Tuesday mm. to see how real these candidates really were. Basically, they said, OK, guys, you had your fun. You advanced your careers. Now it's time to do what you're going to do all along, which is uh, get out of the way. That's right. And then there, I'm sure there were specifics in those phone calls. Look, we'll talk with you. We'll work with you. We'll determine where you want to be in the administration. But it's time to do the thing that you're supposed to do. I bet that's exactly what we happened. We didn't get those phone calls. We, we did not get those phone calls. <laughs> well, and I will so, say on, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, on, this, on the staff issue as well, Andrew Yang, bad staffing. What did his staff say? They called him. They said, endorse Biden. Marianne, endorse Bernie. I think that was that was one of the big differences was that he was a little bit captured by his top top staff and advisors because he thought you have to do this to keep your career up. And Marianne was like, I'm doing what I want. So that's a lot. I will say, though, because I, even I, I struggled with I don't like it when somebody says I'm going to run, but I'm not running to win. You guys were almost honest to a fault. In retrospect, do you feel like, hey, maybe if we just didn't say that part out loud, like you don't have to say I'm running to win. But maybe just don't say, I don't care if I win. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, because yeah. Or I don't want to win. Because yeah. that, that sort of, if you're going to engage in the kind of like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a protest candidate or I'm, I'm running to raise the importance of these issues, in a weird way, it might actually undermine the issues if you're admitting up front, well, I'm not trying to win. You know what I'm saying? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I think a lot of it was people were accusing us or, or were worried about us being a spoiler in some way for Bernie and getting in the way of, you know, basically confusing the field somehow. Mm. And I, what we wanted to do was really lay down for people our intentions. On the other hand, I, I, what I would say personally, it's, it is actually my biggest regret. And one of my very biggest regrets with the whole campaign was not having taken it more seriously from the beginning. Because we could have gotten on those polls. We discovered later on that there were ways to get ourselves on those polls. If we took our, carried ourselves a certain way, had the right contacts, called the right people, it's a very secret world, you know, of people who all know each other, who are all connected. And I have to say, when we came up with the idea, we thought, well, there's no way this is going to work. There's no way he's going to say yes. There's no way anyone's going to pay attention. There's no way a 89-year-old running with two teenagers as his campaign managers mm -hmm. is going to work. If we had known how much it was going to work, we would have taken it deadly serious from the beginning. And we wouldn't have acted the way we did in certain, in certain respects. So that is a big regret of mine. And I, I think it was just because we didn't know. We had no idea it was going to work. There was no if way we to knew, know. Yeah. Right. If, if we knew it was coming, I think we would have behaved differently in a lot of ways. Because I think we would have thought about the whole arc of it. Like, what is the timeline going to be? We maybe would have even stayed in the race longer. Because I think there was a lot more to be done. Especially, for example, with Elizabeth Warren, who really had her sort of brief moment in the polls right after that. And I think it would have been valuable if Mike had still been in there and still been bomb throwing, you know, and another mm. thing about the campaign was doing and saying things that Bernie could not get away with. Right. Right. Mm. Being Bernie's attack dog. Yeah, yeah that's, that's interesting. True. That is interesting. I mean, I, I think it's always good to engage in that kind of self-reflection and analysis and, OK, what have we learned and what would we do? 
what would we do different? But I mean, number one, there was no way to know going in. And number two, if you had gotten on the polls, they probably would have found another way to kick you See, off the stage. I don't know yeah, if I agree we, with we that, Crystal. That, yeah. I actually don't know if I agree with that because I, I always go back to Trump and the Republican Party where he just sort of overwhelmed them through sheer force of will and a, and a giant group of people that supported him. Yeah. And they were able to get a significant number of people supporting Mike Ravel with like the upfront acknowledgement, like I'm not even really trying to win this. Right. So if you drop that and and like you say, Henry, if you maybe do take a slightly different path that's a little bit more strategic, I no, I think it it could have went further. Yeah. I think you're right, Henry. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess to argue against myself, they did let Tulsi on the stage, and they desperately that's did true. not want Tulsi to be that's on the true. stage. That's true. That's <laughs> true. And and it was it was an interesting relationship with us with Tulsi, and I I have a lot of respect for her staff and the people there. I think they you know. They, they saw themselves as doing something quite similar to what we were doing. The big difference was it was also really about her and her career, her personal advancement, which makes sense because she was a real candidate and not just a stunt candidate. Uh, but that also changed the dynamic. One other thing I'd say is we wish we had launched earlier because we took advantage of an interesting dynamic, which is that there's all these campaign reporters, but they have nothing to talk about for months and months at mm. a time. There's no primaries. There's no debates. There's nothing really happening. This is how Pete Buttigieg and Andrew Yang became a thing was because in January, February 2019, when there was nothing to talk about, they became the story because they were interesting. We think if we had started earlier, we could have captured some of that as well. Mm. And that was basically Pete. I mean, I would say if you compare our campaign to Pete's, they're really similar in a lot of ways. You're, you're capturing media dynamics in order to launch yourself from obscurity into some position, you're using this narrative and you're being very clever and targeted with it. The difference was it was for him, it was just all about his personal self-advancement. And for us, it was all about the issues. And I wish that we would have been as ruthless as his campaign, because I think we could have gone much bigger in, even in mainstream media uh, if we had started earlier as well. And that was something I didn't even know. I mean, I had no experience with it, so I had no idea that that was the dynamic. But we realized that with time, journalists were less and less interested as time went on because they had more other stuff to cover. Yeah, and that's uh, for Pete. He utilized old media. You guys utilized new media. So that, I mean, that's a giant difference, and it also speaks to the different philosophies. Insofar as you could even say Pete has a philosophy. Um, you mentioned Tulsi there. So open the can of worms. I got. I got to go down this path. What do you make of what's happened to her? Because she ran nominally all about you know on the left flank, uh, maybe taking a a page out of Bernie's book to some extent and on foreign policy, arguably even outlefting him on that, or at least making that more of the centerpiece of her campaign. And obviously she was grouped in with this, you know, this outsider box of candidates that in that you can include Marianne Williamson, Andrew Yang, um, who else fits in that category? But you guys Bernie and, Bernie and, and you guys. Yeah. Uh, what do you make of what's happened to her since the end of the campaign and, and the path that she's gone down? Yeah, well, I, I I'll say I won't I won't speak ill of of that world in general because I do have a lot of friends there and I think that they're they're good people and they have good intentions. Uh, but the main thing that I would say is I think with Tulsi it was always her it was always her beliefs her positions like she was very very strong willed with her campaign with every belief and I think that a lot of it is that she is a very idiosyncratic character and even her positions on foreign policy left issues were always a little bit. Um, complicated if you really dug into them because they were kind of she always had this view of like uh, America we're doing the empire wrong you know <laughs> we're doing it inefficiently we're wasting resources we're making this mistake but it was not quite the same as uh, left foreign policy uh, and I think that 
there was a seed there that I think ended up going in a bit of a malicious direction. And the other side of it is when you feel so rejected by the Democratic establishment, I think hatred of them becomes your entire politics. Uh, <laughs> I know and, a few people like that. Yeah, yeah. you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, that uh, one happen. And, and, but I'll, I'll say another thing about it, which is I think a lot of this is shaped by the world after the 2020 campaign and, and, and after COVID. You know, everything changed and realigned. And kind of all of us on the left have gone off in different directions. You know, the whole universe fractured in a little bit. And I think once you're there, the, the dynamics you're, you're playing on are like, who invites you on their show? Who wants right. to talk to you? What kind of issues do they want to talk to you about? And then that becomes your public image. You know, you get drawn into that world. And it's happened to many figures on the left. And I think, you know, it shows how much they're subject to forces that are bigger than any of us as individuals. You know, they are adapting to what they see as the political situation. And with Tulsi, I think she's, again, when I say strong-willed, I think she forms her own position on everything from scratch. And so, you know, I think it, she arrives at some very idiosyncratic conclusions that have led her in this odd direction that I don't really agree with. Um, and so anyway, that's, that's what I, I, that's my understanding of it, but I'm not an, I'm not really an insider, so I don't know. Uh, but I, what I would say is I think that people pass a lot of judgment on this stuff and it's kind of pointless to pass so much judgment on the powerless. You know, I'm really interested in the people who have power and influence and everyone who's a gadfly, ultimately we're all uni united in our obscurity and mm -hmm. the fact that when there's a political force to get behind again, when there's a serious winnable campaign, I think everything will change again and everyone's positions will recalibrate again. Yeah, I think that's all very insightful. And it's Agreed. also a good, a good bridge to talk about what you're doing now, because rather than going down that path, that's either, you know, nihilistic or just making your entire politics about not the Democratic Party, um, you co-founded the Gravel Institute. This is a sort of direct shot across the bow and challenge to Prager U, which has been very effective in putting out these videos, sort of explainers of right-wing politics. Um, what is your goal with Gravel Institute? Just lay out for folks what you're up to there. Absolutely. Let me, I'm just gonna open with a quick story because a lot of people were confused. Okay, Mike, 89-year-old guy, why Twitter? Why online? There's no way that he has any interest in any of this stuff. It's actually incorrect. Mike has been a new media guy since the very beginning of his political career. The first time that he ran for Senate in Alaska, he graduated college uh, in, this, in New York City and he said, okay, I wanna go into politics, but I can't go to Massachusetts because it's swarming with Kennedys. <laughs> so he said, okay, there's, there's New Mexico and Alaska, which is about to be incorporated as a state. And he flipped a coin and decided <laughs> on Alaska. Arrived there with literally nothing, became a railway brake man and eight years later, later was the speaker of the Alaska House. Wow. Um, <laughs> just kind of figured it out on his own. He didn't have any connection to Alaska previously. He just kind of you know, completely made himself. And then when he ran for Senate, he created, he didn't do any kind of normal campaign. He instead, he created a 40-minute infomercial <laughs> called Man for Alaska. <laughs> one of the most incredible artifacts I've ever seen and one of the first campaign ads of its kind that was about him as a person and his vision for developing Alaska as a state, which is, it had just become a state. And he was trying to become its second ever senator. Huh. And he uh, created this infomercial and then he flew around the entire state projecting it uh, on you know hillsides for indigenous communities across Alaska. And then also ran it on Alaskan TV every single night for 40 minutes. <laughs> and uh, so he embraced this new media stuff from the very, very beginning. And back in his 2008 campaign, he was one of the first candidates to have Twitter and be online. So anyway, that was the, the seed of it. 
And so one of the biggest lessons that I learned from him was you have to go where new media is and seize it, go work on that terrain before it's even ready. And that was the, that's the approach that we've tried to take. We want to go to this new universe of online media and develop it. But there's, there's one reason we chose the Institute in particular as a project, which is that the left has a lot of media, but it has a lot of celebrities, micro celebrities, parasocial relationships, podcasts. And I listen, I don't begrudge any of those things. I listen to all those podcasts and I follow all those figures. But what it doesn't have a lot of is institutions, mm. you know, groups that can set uh, this consensus viewpoint that unites a lot of different strands and that is connected to power in a real way. That's not just uh, my views as an individual, but our views as a political movement that can articulate them and articulate them in an authoritative and convincing way for outsiders, for people who aren't read into our world. You know, I watched a lot of left YouTube. And one thing about left YouTube is it's so insular. It's people who are already on the left who get all the inside jokes, who understand it all. And if you're somebody who's new to that, it doesn't read as convincing. It doesn't read as authoritative. And that's a big problem, I think, for propagandizing effectively to people. Yeah, you know, I try... Those are all great points, and I really try my best to, when I'm doing secular talk and even here on Crystal Kion Friends, that when I form arguments, I'm trying to speak in a way that's very understandable. I don't try to get lost in the world of theory, and I also try to frame it in a way where somebody who's either on the fence or might even disagree with me might stop and go, oh, I think that's a good point. And to your point, um, I think that left YouTube, it, it can be incredibly insular. I think it can be uh, very didactic and black and white and people are at each other's throats and you got these internal battles which end up defining what's going on as opposed mm -hmm. to, like you say, focusing on the bigger things that matter that, that we all care about. Um, and it's, it's nice to hear that this is a, a path that you're going down where you want to focus on the bigger picture because that is when we are most united and, you know, when Bernie uh, effectively sparked a movement in 2016 and the wind was in everybody's sails and we were all together with a common goal, that was something that, you know, so much more preferable to feeling kind of like times. you're lost in the wilderness, you yeah. know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we need institutions that can uh, ensure the next time we're in that world, it's more organized. Mm. It's more connected and networked together. I mean, a big part of what we're trying to do is form a bridge between all different groups and people like Marianne, for example, bringing them into the fold and helping to articulate a message we can all get behind and we can all understand. And even one that, you know, pulls from various different threads within the left, from the anti-imperialist left, from I think some of the new economic work that's happening that's very important. You know, we need to be able to bring it together into a more coherent package and do this educating that's both internally directed at all of us, you know, improving our own ability to speak on these issues, but also that is putting our best foot forward to the world. And the other thing I would say about all this is I think everything on left YouTube is necessary. You know, I think you guys are super necessary. I think all the new shows, all the individual people, the thing is you need all of it. You know, you need individuals, individual celebrities, and also institutions. And one hope with us is if we create this authoritative stuff, it can have this longer life cycle across the internet. You know, when we make a video, what happens is, you know, Hassan will typically get it on his stream and then he'll start debating it with his, you know, with his uh, uh, followers and everything. And that's kind of the goal is you, you put an idea out there and then you just let it circulate and let people argue about it. Let people tell us that we're not far enough to the left, that we're too far to the left, what have you. You know, once you can start that conversation, 
you're centering people around a, an idea that we can at least you, we can at least all start to start the conversation there. Yeah. And so that's our hope. And, and that's one reason we also do research and policy work is to try to, you know, make it this is the program that we all at least can begin to agree on. Yeah. I mean, your your content isn't tied to news of the day. So it has right. more yeah. permanence. That's right. So, yeah. you know, a year from now, someone can go back and watch the most radical speech in presidential history, the most recent um most recent video that you put out, which I haven't actually watched, I should, but I think it's about FDR. That's on the FDR one. I covered that too. It was the 70th yeah. anniversary recently. It is the 70th anniversary. Um, and, and that's a great one because that's this is us trying to take the fight to PragerU, which is get the professors on there. I mean, get the authoritative sources. That's one thing the left has struggled with is, you know, I love our streamers and everything, but sometimes you want to hear it from a professor. And that's Wait, hold on. Are we not really invited? Understands. I'm offended now. Are we, am I not we allowed want, to do a PragerU no, 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 uh, Prager video, <laughs> a Gravel Institute video? We want, we want everyone. We want everyone. Okay. That's why we have Marianne. But sometimes when you do the history, the economics, you, you gain a lot, and the right understands this. You gain a lot by having somebody with professor in their name because for people who have no context, you know, this is the appeal to authority that really works. Uh, you got and, Har Harvey K. Is that who you had on? Harvey K. Who's yeah, a I love phenomenal him. guy. Very interesting guy. Very online, actually, despite his age. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. What is your favorite of the videos that you've done? What is the one that you felt sort of the most proud of? I know you said the Marianne one is going to be the best one ever, but what of mm. the one, the ones that people can watch now, um, what did you feel like sort of best accomplished the goal? Well, I'm going to cop out and do three okay. um, because people will get mad at me otherwise. Um, on, our, on our team will get mad at me otherwise. But um, uh, probably my, my personal favorite is our review with David Cross on uh, why America lags behind the world. Uh, mm. Because I think what it did for us was it captured the raw emotion of it, the raw pathos. And he's a funny guy, but he took it deadly serious when we had him in the studio because he wanted to really get to people's hearts with that one, you know, and say, uh, why do we put up with this? You know, why do we put up with being the richest country on the world with the highest child poverty rate? Why do we put up with this insane Byzantine healthcare system? Uh, and he wanted to make it funny enough to get the pill down, you know, funny enough to swallow this pill. And I've had so many people tell me that was their introduction to us and, and they really enjoyed it for that reason. Hmm. The, other, the other two I would mention is the documentary we did about the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department gangs. And that one was important to me because it was breaking a story that a lot of people had not heard and one that I think other news outlets simply refused to cover, uh, which is because it, it, it speaks to the very core of police accountability in Los Angeles. Basically, the sheriff's department of Los Angeles has been run by criminal gangs for nearly 30 years, and they've assassinated people. They've killed people. And the journalist we worked with for that series, uh, she has a bodyguard and a bulletproof vest, vest all the time. Wow. because she's literally being hunted uh, for her journalistic work. Uh, and then the last one for me would be the uh, video we did with Zoran Mamdani, the New York uh, assemblyman, because we did this video on how socialists in Austria solved the housing crisis. Mm. And I like that one because this is the thing that we don't do enough of on the left, which is celebrating our victories mm. instead of arguing about our defeats. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's a very tough one because the history is very complicated and a lot of people have a sort of fake understanding of it. And so that's one reason I think the history is so important to us on the channel. So um, if you had Crystal or you had me do um, 
one of these videos for the Gravel Institute. I know you just said celebrating the accomplishments is something we don't do enough of on the left. I actually agree with that. In fact, I'm guilty of that as well. I don't think I celebrate our accomplishments enough either. What would you have us do? Because one of the things that I, I've covered on my show years ago now, I remember reading through a, a great article about how the war on poverty was actually a colossal success and how much it reduced poverty rates, like mm. how well Social Security worked, Medicare worked, uh, et cetera. Uh, what kind of ideas would you have Crystal or I do if we were on the Gravel Institute? Just spitballing here off the top of your head. <laughs> I've thought about it. I have thought about it. Um, I have a, a, actually, th I, have, I have three big themes that I think would be interesting for either of you. Um, one would be, you know, how the media lies to you. Basically, mm -hmm. how do you take a certain set of facts and then turn it into what story you hear from the media? And the other thing of, on that theme would be something like how it exploits your genuine partisan good intentions or for example your distaste for trump to sell you something like russia gate mm. you know to sell you uh, basically how is it that this is sort of the bread and circuses in our society you know yeah. that we get to feel like we're part of this grand political game by being sold these narratives that have no connection to the real issues but they seem to have such high stakes you know they seem to matter so much and you have this director of the cia coming out here and so i think that having that come from somebody who is in the media and in this sort of alt media world and say, listen, I know because these people reject us so totally because we say that we, we, we cross the taboos and the forbidden cows and all this stuff about how, you know, just the other day it was George W. Bush's press secretary, I forget her name, who's on MSNBC. Nicole Wallace. I love Nicole that you Walsh, forgot her name. I'm sorry inviting, I said it. <laughs> I refuse to remember it. I refuse to remember it. And Simone Sanders, who was uh, Biden's press secretary, and the two of them are chuckling it up, inviting her on MSNBC. You know, I think just really speaking to what these people are as people, you know, who are they? And what is it about their insane nihilism and their insane egos that mean that they don't give a fuck what they say one way or the other? It is completely about their own personal advancement and the, you know, the dynamics of success in, in TV media. That is, I think, would be a great topic. Um, the, other, the other two that I would bring up, one would be something like... Um, uh, 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 you know, why is it that public opinion has zero impact on what policies mm. actually oh, yeah. get passed? Another good topic. Oh, and, I could definitely uh, do that. <laughs> there's a particular guy. I was just uh, reading about this for a script last night. This guy, Charles Walker. You probably never heard of him. I had never heard of him. C-H-A-R-L-S, no E, Charles Walker, who was at one point an undersecretary of the Treasury, and then he spent 40 years being probably the most powerful man in American politics that you have never heard of. Hmm. He was a lobbyist for GE, for every bank, wow. for every, for basically the business roundtable. And he architected the business counter-revolution of the 70s and 80s. He architected the massive capital gains tax that started it all off. And he sponsored supply-side economics. He basically created it as a concept and sold it to legislators. And he was basically known as you know, if he wants something to pass, it passes. The president wants something to pass, maybe. If he wants it to pass, it passes. Is this the fail. is this the guy who was caught on a hot mic, basically like bossing around Reagan when Reagan was giving a speech, it, and he's like, it might have "Come been. on, we're wrap so. it up." I think so. I think it was. I think yeah. it Sounds was. Like I, I have to so yeah. he's a he's a story that I think is incredible to tell because it tells you he's a master of all the. DC dynamics. He knows everyone. He's backslapping with everyone. He says a different thing to every person and he always makes it happen. And, and that man is like our Napoleon. I mean, he he runs our system, you know, far more than any president does. 
Yeah, well, and this get, ties into the media conversation because, and the sort of bread and circuses conversation, because they're having this whole fake debate about, like, what really motivates Joe Manchin and, you know, oh, he's just looking out for West Virginia and it's because of his political realities and completely hiding the ball on the actual forces that are yep. shaping Joe Manchin's behavior, Kirsten Cinema's behavior, Nancy Pelosi's behavior. Right. And so people feel like it's so confusing and they can't understand why public opinion has no impact on the legislative process, why they keep voting in this, you know, different parties and getting very similar results. And, uh, you know, the media just completely hides the ball on who has real power and what right, really right. moves ultimately these forces. Definitely. And I think I think that's one of the themes we're trying to get to the core of with the Institute, which is if you just understand the history, how we got to this point uh, and then also, you know, the stuff, the, the reason why you haven't learned it, you know, if you can understand why they haven't told you this in the past, you'll understand the situation we're in. And uh, we th that's why we think education is the main role for us. And as you said, we don't do the live stuff or the reactive stuff. We're not just reacting to the news. And uh, what that means is hopefully we can make stuff that's evergreen and that you can be showing people five and 10 years from now and it'll still be useful. What's some of the feedback that you've gotten that's been, that's made you feel the best or made you the happiest? Because I know, you know, certain things that we hear on breaking points about people, especially I love people who are like, I disagree with you on this or that, but you changed my mind here or you changed my mind there or you enabled me to have a conversation with a family member who I'd been estranged from because of our different politics. Like those are things that I really uh, sort of carry with me and make me really passionate about continuing the work that we're doing. What's the equivalent kind of feedback that you get that really feeds your soul? It's always when when they say my mother, my brother, sister, whatever is is a PragerU person is posting PragerU videos, and I started sending them yours, and they started changing their minds. That was the that's the biggest one, that's and we've awesome. had a, a decent number of those, um, and a lot of people saying I was getting in an argument on Facebook, and I you know they send me a PragerU video, and I didn't have anything to reach for, and then I thought oh wait I have you. And so they posted that. And that was when we started, that was the main goal. Like, if you want an answer on any topic in American life, you can Google it and you're going to find a PragerU video. And it's going to be some of the most devilish propaganda out there. Oh, yeah. And the left just doesn't have an equivalent, you know. And even now, we're only about 30 videos in. PragerU has a couple hundred. So we're still behind. And we're still, you know, uh, uh, we still have a long, a long way to go to, to reach that point. But that's the feedback that speaks to me. The other feedback that really speaks to me is when we've done videos on foreign countries. So Brazil, Argentina, the legacy of the dictatorship, the dirty war in Argentina. And we get all these messages from Argentinians and from Brazilians. Um, you know, when Pedro Castillo won in Peru, we tweeted about it. We had so many Peruvian people follow us and DM us and say, I'm so happy to see anyone in the American left paying attention to this. Mm. Um, you know, to me, it goes to the legacy of the late great Michael Brooks, mm -hmm. which is to center the international struggle and to do it in a way that brings hope to us in America, but also reminds us the unique responsibility that we have, which is more than anything, we need to help the international movement succeed. And honestly, if we could accomplish nothing else, this is why I always thought Bernie mattered so much, because even if he had a Congress that blocked him at every single turn, the president has absolute control over foreign policy in this country. And he could have done a tremendous amount to simply take the boot off the neck for parties around the world, you know, who are constantly facing the uphill battle of U.S. involvement and yeah. the IMF, the World Bank. 
so so anyway, that's that's the other side to, of it to me is when the international dimension gets in there. And then you, you, I hear it from both sides. So I hear it from Argentinians, but I also hear it from Americans like, I didn't know this. And I'm so happy to finally get the real story and finally understand uh, what America did in the 20th century. You know, it's funny how much how much crossover there is and, and the similarities, because I always felt the same way. I always said the same thing, that the my proudest moments are when I'm at some Politicon event and somebody comes up to me and says, I was a big Ben Shapiro fan or Steven Crowder fan or whatever. And it's like, then I started watching your stuff and here I am. Like you, you know, you deconverted me. And that, that, that always makes me feel the best because you can sense a real world impact. And if you multiply that by 10 times or a hundred times or a thousand times, it's like, Oh, might actually be making a little bit of a difference here. Um, here's, here's my tough question. You ready? When I run for president, will you be my campaign manager? <laughs> Well, you know, I have to say, we'll, we'll have to see where the Institute is by then. We, we as a 501c3, uh, you know, cannot weigh in on politics. Uh, mm. Obviously, that, that, that's, that's a little bit of a, uh, an open-ended concept. Uh, you, can, you can say what you want about political issues. You just can't endorse candidates explicitly. Uh, so that's our, that, you know, that's, that's the position that we're in for now, at least. So you have so, no advice on getting past my old tweets? <laughs> I, 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 all I would say about that is that I think Trump proves that uh, if you have a backlog of real goofy bangers, right. uh, mm -hmm. people actually love it. Yeah, yeah. I just went up ten <laughs> points in the polls. That's been, your, <laughs> that's been Kyle's exactly. experience as well. <laughs> I, I was, I was going to say that, yeah, but, but, but the, uh, on a, on a, on a serious note, because I do think it, it matters. I think that when things come together again, and it will, you know, as, as easy as it is to feel like we're out in the wilderness. A lot of it is just because we don't have a common enemy, you know, because the whole universe of American politics is so turned on its head by the last couple of years. Uh, but I think what you guys really represent as populists and as people who also speak to the right and argue with them and debate them and, you know, uh, uh, treat them like people who need to be convinced, people who need to be converted, but also people who need to be, uh, you know, acknowledged on, on any level. And I don't say that because I think that we need to accept their framing or their arguments, but because we need to accept that our goal is to convert everyone. You know, our goal is to convert the working class, but also this extremely broad coalition, I think, that we have to put together to ever reach power. And, you know, the hope is with you guys building your audience and your, uh, you know, media, us doing the same and hopefully everyone else doing it as well, and us all building these links together, that when the next campaign comes along, we will have firepower and organization that the new right had in the 70s and 80s, but mm. that we did not have the last time Bernie ran. Yeah. You know, we didn't have it built already. Even though we had this years between 2016 and 2020, it was still too early days. And we're not even close to where I think we will be institutionally in another five years. Um, Henry, you mentioned the way the pandemic has sort of turned life on its head and turned politics on its head. What has that experience been like for you as someone who's going through college while all of this is going on? Well, I actually dropped out of college uh, now for, for, for a year at a time. I, I have returned now, but I took a year off because I, I was so bad at online school and I, I couldn't handle it. Um, and the main experience for me has been, it, you know, I saw this with millennials and I know you guys must know this growing up with nine, the shadow of 9-11 and the 2008 financial crisis that shaped that entire generation. Oh, yeah. Um, for us. It's doubly so because 9-11 was one day and then, you know, the years that followed. And 2008 was sort of this long, slow burn that was a part of your life, but in these specific sort of uh, narrow ways. 
But the pandemic is totalizing. It's everything. It's your life for the last two years has been defined by it, no matter who you are. Um, and that, I think, is the big difference. You know, for us, it's not something you can look around. I mean, a lot of people could say, well, I just didn't pay attention to the news in the 2000s. So I didn't, I didn't realize 9-11 was a big deal or something. It's impossible to, to act that way about the pandemic. And the other thing I think about it is that it, it speaks to the crisis of our system. You know, we have completely lost faith in institutions and in state capacity. And it's because the government we have, the state we have, has atrophied so much since the 80s and the Reagan revolution that it can't hardly do anything anymore. Uh, you know, I saw this in South Carolina to distribute vaccines and tests. They hired McKinsey and paid them $25 million oh. Oh, to Christ. badly misadminister the thing that they really should have been able to do themselves. And they had to do this stuff because they've atrophied the capacity to do anything as a state. That, I think, is the biggest lesson for people in my generation. And it's, it's one reason why I think there's so much for us on the left to seize on. There's this vague general sense that the system cannot hold. Uh, but nobody knows what's going to replace it. Nobody knows what to go to. And I think it's very inchoate right now. You know, People don't know how to channel their, the feelings that this is giving them. That's why we did the Marianne video. It's all about feelings. Yeah. You know, to your point, there's, there's, there's no cohesive response on the left because on some of the biggest points, there's still a lot of debate on the left, whether it's lockdowns versus don't lock down, whether it's vaccine mandate versus no vaccine mandate versus vaccine or test. There's like on that stuff, there's the left isn't one on it. So it's hard to win any battles if you don't even know what side of the particular uh, I mean, what side not all of the, the left is even on board with the vaccine period. It, right. well, exactly. That's my point. And so it's like, but you would think that if everybody was being uh, logical about it, you would think that we could at least agree for example, on the fact that Joe Biden should have invoked the Defense Production Act and then, uh, you know, massively ramped up the testing and, and lifted the patent protection, lifted I mean, the patent protections for the vaccine. That's what, well, any of stuff. the anti-vax yeah. people won't agree with that. But most people are going to agree with that, obviously. Well, yeah, well, and, I, and I would say on that one, too, that that kind of gets to the core of what the Biden administration really is to me, which is people who care a lot about their image and what's said about them, but care very little about the substance. Because, right. for example with the vaccine patents, they did say they were going to waive it. They said, we're going to go sponsor this waiver, uh, this TRIPS waiver at the WTO. And then they've never brought it up again. They just said that to the American people. They said in a press statement, at every single WTO negotiation, the United States negotiators don't even bring it up. They don't even say it. Yeah. They allegedly would vote that way if it came to a vote, but they're not the ones standing in the way anymore. It's Germany now, and they are not exerting the, well, much, the, the least amount of pressure it, to make it's it actually. Happen. And it's actually not just Germany, because if you re read the specifics of what uh, the Biden administration was saying, they said we support a waiver for right. vaccine patents. They didn't support the TRIPS waiver, which was proposed by India and South Africa. Right. And they so, haven't drafted their own. And they were no, like, no, basically, no. oh, we'll negotiate it. But then they didn't come up but with any proposal didn't. and they're not responding to other people's proposals. So yeah. it was right. it, to your point. It's all optics. And the fact that they can't even get their stuff together enough to like 
do the Defense Production Act to imp- increase the production of monoclonal antibodies? Yeah. You know, yeah they can't yeah. even do that's that, and that's something that everybody should agree on. You know, it's the same thing with Afghanistan, where it was all about this is a new era for America, we're ending the war, and now they're prosecuting the war by other means. They're Famine, prosecuting right. it through economic means, and they're going to kill more people that's yeah. right. through those means yep. than the 40-year war, going back to the Soviets, the 40-year war in Afghanistan, because in Afghanistan, that's how they experience it. It's not two wars. It's right. not. It's an era of war. It's an era of war that began in the 80s and is still going on today. And now this economic stage of that war is going to kill more people than all that oh, preceded it. It's and brutal. that's what the Biden administration foreign policy looks like in general. It's all these half measures and optics things where in reality it just remains at, at, with the very core of, of American policy. And that's not to say they haven't done things like wind down the drone program or withdraw from Afghanistan. But again, that's because those things look bad. <laughs> they looked really bad. So they handled the parts of it that looked bad, but not the substance of it. The substance of it is all in place still. Well, and they got hell for, you know, the little sliver of something <laughs> yeah, right that they did. The one positive that's thing. Right. Yeah. They got hell. Well, that's this, and that's this why drove... they're scared shitless of doing any more. That's right. it. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly right. They don't want the talking point that they're funding the Taliban, so they're going to let 20 million people starve. I mean, that's that's what's going on here. And the media piece that is so disgraceful is you had all these people who sit on the board of Raytheon or Condoleezza Rice, all these people who were hand-wringing about, oh, they care so much about the Afghan civilians and that's all their concern. And now they don't have a fucking word. And they're starving them. To say about literally it. Literally starving them to death. All these people are starving to death. Why? Because Thank there you. isn't an angle in it for Raytheon to make money. And so, I mean, it comes back to the media conversation and having institutions who are going to expose that, you know, the real dynamics that are going on there. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is why the foreign policy dimension is such an important litmus test for politicians in general and Mm. for understanding also media figures, where they stand. Because, you know, look at, you can look at Chile last month, right? Cast versus uh, um, uh, uh, Boric. And you know, with these kinds of elections, you're talking about essentially neo-fascists, people who support military fascist right-wing regimes from the 20th century. Uh, and there's many of them in Latin America. Bolsonaro is really the same way. Um, they either explicitly or implicitly want to return to military dictatorship. They certainly think violence is justified to suppress the left. And American commentators, these enlightened liberals, will never say a thing about it. Yep. They'll never comment on it. And if anything, they'll say, well, really, it's a little unstable, you know, cast maybe is the safe pick, Bolsonaro is maybe the business pick. And that, so that's, I think, a very good window into what their real policies are, because they're enlightened liberals into human rights until it has to do with another country. Yeah. I'm, and uh, and the, that's that's a good test, I think, for, for understanding where they really are. But the American press pretended that Juan Guaido was the elected leader of Venezuela. <laughs> they just fucking made it up. The, the, the U.S. State Department was like, this guy's uh, the head of Venezuela or something. And Mer- um, the American press was like, yeah, all right. President Juan Guaido was like, you guys just made that shit up. And all the hand-wringing about, uh, you know, democracy. There was a report that came out a few years ago. The U.S. militarily supports 73% of the world's dictatorships. I mean, our right. fucking top ally is Saudi Arabia, who beheads people in the street for witchcraft and sorcery and apostasy. And they have the nerve to play along and, and perpetuate this charade? Well, and their excuse on Afghanistan, they say, oh, we'll give them, we'll unfreeze their assets, right? Their billions of their their money that is held in our bank accounts when they have an inclusive government and no longer discriminate. And it's like, 
Oh, do you have that same rule for Saudi Arabia? Yeah. How does that yeah. work? Tell and, me about that one. And tell by me the about, way, tell me about how that works when it comes to Israel. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, it's just and, absurd. And, and these are acts of war. I mean, they are oh, acts yes. of war. And we've concealed them because over time we have, and there's great work from people like Samuel Moyne, Professor Samuel Moyne, about how we have sanitized war through human rights, through mm. by by taking its its most egregious elements and simply putting them in venues that we can't see, that we don't look at, because it's not our soldiers on the ground, it's not our planes, it's not our bombs. But make no mistake, I mean, cutting a country off from the world financial system, like we did with Venezuela, for example, is essentially a death sentence. I mean, you are saying, in, in the modern world, you are saying you are essentially a, an exile from humanity. You are essentially exiled from the entire world of commerce and exchange. And if you do that to a nation, you are essentially passing a death sentence on it. I mean, this is the whole thing with Russia when people talk about that people that, that they would put these financial swift sanctions on Russia. This would start World War III. I know Absolutely. Unquestionably. unquestionably. Uh, and, and so I think that's the that's the element that also really matters for the international left. And what one of our most important roles as American leftists is, in my opinion, is to make sure that other countries don't face this, that they don't and that and that institutions like the IMF are steered in a different direction because it's life and death for these countries. And, and it doesn't, the sanctions never hurt the elites. There's been sanctions on North Korea for decades and the elites are still in power. The sanctions hurt the civilians, hurt the yeah. innocent population. So, yeah. that's And ironically, point. ironically, that is one reason why sanctions don't even work for their stated purpose because right. sanctions supposedly are about regime change. But to be honest, if you want regime change in authoritarian countries, you need to make the elite angry. Not the people. The people are already angry. Right, you because it gives the, elite the elites in a way to rally the people. Well, that lets them off the hook. Yeah, not my right. Look, the starving. fucking Americans, the great Satan is starving you, and exactly. it's true. Exactly, exactly. And this has happened in Iran. You know, a lot of Iranian leftists oh, yeah. tell me this. They say the reason Iranian politics is so deadlocked and is such a big problem is because they can't really address any of their own problems because they can fairly say it's all the Americans. Right. That's right. That's it. That's, That's exactly, exactly correct. Yep. Well, I think the work you all are doing is so incredible. Um, it's so important, and it's such a perfect continuation extension of Mike Ravel's legacy. Um, I, as a final question, just reflect a little bit on you know maybe some of your final interactions with him and and what he wanted people to view and take from his life and the the battles that he fought. Yeah, you know Mike. I, I lost both of my uh, uh, grandfathers uh, without really knowing either of them and having a, a relationship with either of them. And Mike kind of became a surrogate grandfather for me mm. in a time that was really pivotal, you know? And he wasn't just a surrogate grandfather, he was also my mentor and my boss. Uh, I got misquoted by the New York Post at one point um, when I gave a bit of a too fiery interview about Biden to them. And, uh, you know, a lot of people were very mad about it. I got literal death threats from liberals, liberal death threats for uh, being insufficiently pro-Biden. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 you know, I spoke to Mike on the phone and he said, oh, first time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, it was, you know, it was moments like that that really made me who I am now because, you know, I got a crash course from the man himself. And the thing is, he always knew how to play the game, be in the system, but also throw fireballs at the center of it. You know, that was the biggest lesson that I learned from him. When it was nearer to the end, I have to say, nobody was ready for it except him. You know, mm -hmm. his family, us. You know, it was it was too soon, and I I had not known him for as long as I wanted to, and you know I got to go to his 
family reunion, meet his sister, meet his meet his children, his grandchildren, and and even his surrogate children, all of his former staffers. You know, he created a political dynasty in Alaska that he had staffers and people who worked for him who are now fourth and fifth generation city council people all wow. over Alaska who run. So he really has this this legacy there that's totally apart from the way that we all know him now. And meeting all of them and seeing all of them and, and what Mike meant to them made me see just as a person how important he was and what kind of impact he had. And it was right at the end, the last time that I ever spoke to him uh, over video chat when he was in his hospital bed, he said, you know, listen, it's the end for me physically, but it's just the beginning for you. You know, it's just the beginning for you and David, you know, uh, who started the campaign, but it's also just the beginning for us as a movement. Um, and, I, you know, he was unwavering. And I have to say, I, I don't let, I can't let myself feel hopeless if he was able to be so in the wilderness for 60 years and never give up. You know, he had an entire lifetime in the political wilderness and it didn't break his hope. Mm. So how can how can we when we have made more progress in five years than he imagined his entire life? Mm. Uh, how can we give up? You know, how can we let that let that go to waste? And I, and I think that's the thing that I hold with him the most is that we have a responsibility to him to deliver on that, deliver on it with the Institute. But also all of us owe it to him because I don't know. I mean, he was 89 years old and he was willing to give up his time, his energy uh, just to be a symbol for people, you know? And that's what he is, what I think the legacy of the campaign is, is all the young people who tell me, I saw that video, I saw the leading lights of the Democratic Party taken to task by this nobody, and I realized it was possible. And I mean, if that's how he's remembered, I think he'd be very happy with that. Um, and the other thing I was gonna say is when he, when he did die, the eulogies that came in from him were from the most astounding collection of people. You know, Joe Biden actually sent a letter to his uh, his his widow Whitney, mm -hmm. and uh, but it was him. It was the Libertarian Party of Texas. It was the Republican governor of Alaska. It was the Democratic Socialists of America. Mm -hmm. It was the the Maoists and the Marxist Leninists and everyone, <laughs> everyone. And nobody him. in mainstream media. And nobody, nobody in mainstream, in the mainstream media. They, they said nobody he was a gadfly. But everyone who's on the fringes understood that in some ways he belongs to us because he shows that you can be on the fringes and still matter. Um, and I think I don't, that, that's his legacy to me. You know, the fact that we're talking about him at all when hardly anyone knew him, you know, a couple of years back, I think that's what would matter. And, and honestly, if we mythologize him, if we change his memory, if we, you know, whatever we do, so long as we make it useful to our movement, he would be happy with it, even if it's a myth, even if it's mythology, because you need political mythology. He, um, before you wrap up, I yeah. just want to, and that was all beautiful, by the way, Henry. Uh, in the words of Mike Gravel himself, he said, when I showed up to the Senate, I looked around and said, how'd I get here? And then you're there for a little while, and you look at everybody and say, how the hell did you get here? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, that sums it up very well. Your message of hope is much needed. You all are doing the Lord's or the universe's or whatever's work. Um, tell people where to follow you and also give us a, a sense of when the Marianne video might drop. Absolutely. Marianne video, I'm going to say mid-March, but I don't know. We, our production timeline's getting moved around. We're actually working on a video on these Afghanistan sanctions right now. Oh, great. That I would say for everyone here, go to Just Foreign Policy. This is not my thing, but I, I still recommend go do it. Go to Just Foreign Policy, sign their petition on the Afghanistan sanctions. This is one of these cases where petitions do matter because you're talking about five, six people in the Biden White House who control these sanctions. And if they feel shame, 
uh, they will do something. And it's it's getting close. I mean, it looks like they, they can be moved. And so we're working on a video to really strike at the heart of them and, and change their minds right now. Uh, I would recommend everyone go to YouTube, follow the Gravel Institute, follow our videos, turn notifications on. If you can, you can support us on Patreon for five, ten dollars a month. We're 100% crowdfunded. We've not never been able to raise from large donors. They're not interested. So, uh, so the only way we can make our content is with small donors supporting us. And then I would say go watch American Gadfly, Sky's movie. You know, uh, it's it's really I think for anyone feeling kind of hopeless right now. Even me, it's fun to revisit that moment before the pandemic, back when Bernie was still in, and just think how different things felt then. I think it's important to keep that in mind. So anyway, I would recommend everyone go watch it and support Sky. And for anyone who wants to, we will be at a panel at South by Southwest with Marianne. Oh, cool. Um, That's wonderful. And it's on Hulu, so right? There. It's on, uh, sorry, it's on Apple TV. Apple TV? It's on Prime TV. Any, any place you can rent movies, you can get it all there. It will be on a streaming service eventually. Okay. Uh, another wonderful. one. But you can get it on Apple TV for any of these things. You can get a discount if you go to Sky's website, AmericanGadfly.com. And uh, and yeah, and and the and the last thing that I would say as well is uh, for everyone out there, you know, the when you feel that hopelessness or or what have you, just go to Mike's Wikipedia page and go go read what he was doing for the 50-year period when he was in the wilderness because it's a it's a I think it, it tells you pretty much everything you need to know. I think that is all very well said. I hope you guys out there watching and listening will support these guys because the work they're doing is absolutely vital. Um, Henry, thank you so much for taking some time with us. This was wonderful. Thank you for having me on. And both of you are welcome in our studio anytime in Brooklyn. I would love to have you by and do a video. All right. I'd love make to do happen. that. Yeah, that'd we'll be great. Happen. Let's do it. Yeah. Take care, Henry. You too. All right. That was Henry Williams. Um, a lot of great stuff there. I mean... That's a smart, super optimistic guy. for a younger generation, you know, like you you almost get the sense or maybe I'm wrong and it's just an assumption I made, but I almost get the sense that for the younger generation in particular, they look around and they're like, "Jesus, we are screwed." Yeah. But like climate crisis, pandemic, just disaster. But he's bold, fresh-faced and ready to go, you know? And that uh that that gives me a nice little adrenaline rush where I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, let's That's go. That's right. Because every time I, I make a anti-pessimistic argument, I'm always doubting myself. I'm always like, am I right? Am I wrong? Like, what am I missing? Am I missing something here? And, uh, you know, in, in my worst moments, I'll, I'll go, I'll entertain the pessimism and the nihilism and all that stuff because it's yeah. only natural at times. To, well, what the hell? What are we going to do now? But, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you almost need to take the stance as a matter of principle. Like, we can't afford to not push relentlessly yeah. as if it all matters because it does all matter. And whether or not it works is almost beside the point because it's virtuous in and of itself to keep pushing. Yes. And think of, I mean, think of what they did. Like, there was no path there. There was no lane there. There was no obvious opening. And they just had this creative insight of, like, you know, we could really stir some things up and make people uncomfortable and push a message if we just, you know— take this crazy approach of convince Mike Gravel to run for president and we're going to be posters extraordinaire and we could actually get far doing that. So even when it feels like there's no lane, there's always something you could do, some lever you could push, some little insight into the moment and the culture that you could pursue. Um, before we started our interview with Henry, he was saying that he's really more of a sort of like behind the camera kind of a guy, but he needs to be out front more because he's very uh, compelling 
and very persuasive in the way that he ultimately lays things out. And we need a lot more of that sort of hopeful optimism that's very realistic and very grounded and okay here are concrete actions we can take we need a lot more of that on the left well you're still seeing his vision with the gravel institute either way whether or not he's in front of the camera and mm -hmm. clearly i mean he seems like he's more about the organizational skills where he can connect the dots he can dot the i's and cross the t's and, and actually do the organizing that's absolutely necessary on the left and i feel like that is a big part of what's missing on the left is like do we have people who could just organize something yeah and it's like well no, most of us can't. Most of us are idiots. Most of us are prima donnas. Most of I need to be out here making fart noises and like messing around. You need people behind the scenes who are serious and know how to actually get a ball rolling on a project that's really important with a thousand different moving parts. So I think he's he's got a lot of self awareness, especially for somebody as young as him. You know, he's twenty one years old now. When I was twenty one years old, I did not have self awareness. I was high on Percocet, <laughs> drinking four loco, and uh, being an asshole. That's that's not much has changed. Anyway, uh, one of the things that I was thinking about is, um, and I brought this up to you, so I watched this ContraPoints video the other day on Envy, mm -hmm. and she made a great point in the middle of it that was hit me so hard I recorded it and sent it to you, where she talks about the politics of resentment. Mm -hmm. And the, the whole point of the politics of resentment is not actually to make anything better. The whole point is the critique. So, like, that's the only thing that matters to them. And what happens is... It's this nihilism and pessimism that, that gives you this sense of ironic detachment where you're above the fray, you don't need to get your hands dirty, and you lob bombs at anybody who's trying to get their hands dirty and actually do the work because you're so naive and silly, why are you even trying that anyway? And that's yeah. the biggest problem on the actual left that I've seen Yeah, is that mindset. It's and a defense mechanism. It's a defense mechanism about against like putting yourself out there and actually backing something that could lead to disappointment, heartbreak, et cetera, especially after we all just had our hearts broken, you know, in 2016 and then again in 2020. And, um, you know, figures like the squad that we also really put a, invested a lot of hope and like, you know, put ourselves out there backing, didn't turn out to to advocate in the way that we wanted them to. So you've had all these heartbreaks and it's it's sort of like all right well i'm just i'm not going to put myself out there i'm not going to get behind anything anymore i'm just going to throw stones that's a safer it's a defensive cross it's a safer place to be but then for those people who do sort of step out and, and tenderly consider you know this or that pathway to affect change well then you're even it's even more fraught because you have this whole group of people who are supposed allies who are waiting in the wings to throw bombs at you for even daring to hope for something. That's when I have a problem with it. I yeah. actually don't begrudge you if you got your heart so thoroughly broken by the state of affairs that you're like, you know what, I don't have it in me anymore. I'm gonna go make model airplanes or whatever. Like right. fill in the blank with whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to blame you because I get it. We all feel like that in our darkest moments. I actively become very pissed off when those people start lobbing bombs at the people who are, who are trying. Because then it's like, well, now you're at, without even realizing it, you are helping the establishment. That helps the establishment. Yeah. They like that. They want you to do self-disenfranchisement. And that's what that is. That's self-disenfranchisement. So having a conversation like this with somebody who has not in any way, shape, or form entertained going down that path, and largely because of the lessons that he learned from Mike Ravel, he said, look, he was out there in the wilderness for 60 years, but he kept fighting. And he won a lot of battles. That's a guy who won a lot of battles. I mean, what happened with uh, the Pentagon Papers and exposing what happened in Vietnam, do people have any idea how heroic that is? 
That's like an Edward Snowden or Julian Assange before there was an Edward Snowden or Julian Assange or Daniel Ellsberg. Yeah, and the way he was treated and dismissed and pretended like he was a fool and he was ridiculous and he was a gadfly. I mean, he sustained these media attacks of them just basically ridiculing him and and making making it uh, painting a portrait of him as an unserious person and he just continues but who really got the last laugh because he's 89 he was 89 years old at the time he ran for president from his couch (laughs) and homeboy beat like 40 people okay so who really got the last laugh here it shows that you know if you actually stand for something if you actually fight for something and if all the pieces come together and you're strategic enough uh you could come close to getting there or actually get there. And the thing, actually my favorite part was when he, when I asked the question about, well, do you regret sort of admitting up front, like we're not trying to win or any yeah. of that stuff? And he was basically like, yeah, I do. And if we handled this in slightly different ways, and if behind the scenes we dotted this I or crossed that T, well, then it would have been a little different. We would have got a lot farther. Hey, maybe we would have been on the debate stage. When I look at that, I think this that's the kind of person that I want around me because it's not just to throw your hands up and say, ah, what are we going to do anyway? It's the, seriously, let's analyze this, let's figure out what mm-hmm. went wrong, and then let's adjust course. And you don't stand there and say, I got everything right every step of the way. Yeah. Because that's dumb. That's dumb. And what you find oftentimes is that our political enemies are phenomenally organized, and we're not. So it's time to get a little bit of that swagger and a little bit more of that intellect injected into the movement. Yeah, which is their explicit project, which again, you guys should go uh, definitely sub to the YouTube channel, Gravel Institute YouTube channel. And I would, I really would recommend, and I'm going to, I'm actually negligent and not doing this yet. Go onto their Patreon and if you can support them there as well, because um, they're unique in the work that they're doing. There's nothing yeah. else that existed mm-hmm. that exists that's out there on the left that's doing the same thing, and they do it exceptionally well. I mean, you can watch any one of these videos, and they are so thoughtful, so well-researched, so powerful, so persuasive. Having more of that in the ecosystem is a very, very good thing in and of itself. Prager U of the left is exactly what they are, but they actually give information as opposed to the rank propaganda that you see on PragerU. So follow Gravel Institute on Twitter. Subscribe, uh, just like you said, on YouTube if you can, throw him a couple bucks on Patreon. And uh, I like that he's in the a very lonely club that you and I are also in. That club is we just raise our money through small dollar donations. Yes. That's what it is. And so that's how this show is funded as well. As I say all the time, Crystal and I have literally never had a conversation with a single advertiser for this show, even though, given the size of the show, advertisers would love to throw money at us or have us read ads or have pre-roll ads or whatever. But we decided when we did this, look, we want to build something that's a lot more pure. We want to live our values. And we just do it through small dollar donations. If you pay $5 a month on Substack, you get the video, you get it a day early. If not, you can uh, subscribe on Substack for free also, and you get uh, the audio a day later. However you support the show, we deeply appreciate it. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing is when you do it a more pure way, yeah, sometimes you take a hit. Your wallet takes a hit. And it's fine. It is what it is. But I respect the fact that they're raising through small dollar donations. And I hope more people join our club because it's a club where, you know, it, it... Certainly makes your conscience feel good. I'll say that much. Yeah, that's definitely the case. And we really appreciate you guys supporting us. I hope you enjoyed um, today's conversation. It was uh, really, I really enjoyed it. I yeah. It was much needed. It did my soul good, at least. I hope same. it does no, a lot of good for you as well. And we'll see you back here next week.